This is Jocko Podcast number 420 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I chalked both my hands and took a few breaths. I didn't think at all about my position or how I felt. I just carried forward on autopilot. Left hand crimped another side pull. Left foot jammed into a lower crack, somewhat sideways. Right foot came up high by my waist and towed into a tiny scoop. The tension between my left hand and right foot created stability and I raised my right hand up to a very small but down pulling crimp. My left hand palmed down on the wall below me and I raised my left foot extra high onto a very sloping shelf. As soon as the foot was placed, I drove down with it and stood up the thumber cling with my left thumb. The hold was an upside down ripple, maybe an inch long and a few millimeters wide. So small that it would never qualify as a handhold, except for the fact that most of my weight was on my feet. I placed my hand perfectly, my thumb going into the more sloping part in order to leave the better inch of space for my index and middle fingers to curl over. My right foot sneaked in and matched next to my left, and my left foot kicked out leftward to a slippery black knob. The whole route came down to the next four moves, the hardest of the whole sequence. My right hand came into my left, and I removed my index and middle fingers, which had been stuck to the wall only by the tension between my right big toe and my left thumb. My right thumb took the finger's place on the good part of the ripple, and my left hand shot out left to grab the sloping loaf. I squeezed it for all I was worth and moved my right hand back to the initial down-pulling crimp. I was in an iron cross, fully spanned between the two holds, right foot through to the sloping dish, hips open, left foot across to a tiny chip, chalk my right hand, break it into the top of the loaf. Now, I was set up for the karate kick, though I spent no time thinking about it. My right foot came into the crucial small edge perfectly placed to provide counter pressure when I kicked my left foot across. I subtly switched the position of my left hand, making it feel slightly more secure as I squeezed my two hands together and crushed the loaf. As if on autopilot, my left foot shot out perfectly perpendicular to my body, full extension, three feet to the left. It hit the far wall of the corner exactly where it needed to be. What used to feel like a desperate falling kick now felt like an easy foot placement. My feet felt welded to the wall. Months of stretching paid off as I brought my left hand to the crack next to my foot. My right hand switched to palming downward and I felt secure, balanced between my left foot and my right palm. I reached my left hand up to a big edge and I was done. I was through the boulder problem. I felt a flood of elation or maybe just relief. I was suddenly aware of the world around me again, including the cameras fixed to the wall on either side of me. I said something like, oh yeah, into the camera in front of me. I started laughing. I romped up the final few easy moves to faint to the faint ledge above. I stood on the ledge for a minute, breathing hard, exultant. I knew that somewhere in the meadow, 2,300 feet below, 
Mikey was watching me through the long shot. I pumped my fists over my head, facing the meadow, wondering whether they saw me. For once, I was somewhat glad that I had an audience. I felt like a hero. I still had 10 pitches up to 512B above me, but I felt like I'd cleared the final hurdle. Now, it was just cruising to the finish line. And that right there is an excerpt from a book called Alone on the Wall, written by Alex Honnold with David Roberts. Alex Honnold is a rock climber and a legend in the climbing world who's accomplished amazing feats of climbing, free solo climbing, which is climbing with no ropes and no protection of any kind. And a lot of this by himself started with no fanfare in 2007. 2007, as a young climber, he free soloed, and again, that's that's no ropes, no protection. He free soloed Astro Man and Rostrum in Yosemite, which are two legendary climbs, and then a year later in 2008, he was the first person to free solo Moonlight Buttress, Moonlight Buttress in Zion National Park. And he did that on April Fool's Day, and when it, word got out that he had done this, some people thought that, that it was a joke, that it was just an April Fool's joke, because who would climb that without a rope? Well, he would, and he did. And he didn't stop there. Also in 2008, he free-soloed the regular northwest face of Half Dome, which is 2,000 feet of rock straight up out of Yosemite Valley. He was the first person to do that as well. And then he started getting a little bit more mainstream attention. He was featured in a movie called Alone on the Wall, which I saw when it came out at some little rock climbing festival here in San Diego. And it was, it, parts of it are hard to watch <laughs> if you've been up at altitude before. But he continued to climb, continued to train, continued to learn. And continue to accomplish feats in rock climbing. Eventually, on June 3rd, 2017, he made the first free solo ascent of the free ride route up Yosemite's El Cap, which is 3,000 feet, almost 3,000 feet of vertical granite jolting straight up out of the valley. And that pursuit was captured in the Oscar award-winning movie called Free Solo by Jimmy Chin. And a few days later, he and another renowned climber, Tommy Caldwell, Caldwell uh, broke the speed record up the nose of El Cap, completing it in an hour, one hour, 58 minutes and seven seconds, the first people to do it under two hours, and he still hasn't stopped. He continues to push the envelope and rock and now alpine climbing. He has a podcast called Climbing Gold. He has a charity organization a master class, the Honnold Foundation, which helps people around the world that need access to solar energy, and incredible things being done all the time by this individual. And it's an honor to have Alex here with us tonight to talk about his experiences and lessons learned. Alex, thanks for joining us, man. Awesome to meet you. Oh, th- thanks for having me. That's the 
biggest intro I've ever heard. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> uh, I, when we started talking about having you on and Echo was not too familiar with rock climbing and I just broke out the section of you doing the boulder problem uh, in on YouTube and he was like, oh my God, what is going on? I said, yeah, this is, this is the next level of, it's the next level of human achievement. And I've been, whenever people ask me about this, I think that that run up uh, free rider that you did, I, I can't think of a, of a bigger sort of physical human achievement for a human being to do, I don't know. I can't think of one. If I do, I'll I'll let the world know. But that was just <laughs> an incredible thing to see. No, I appreciate it. Um, so I, I hadn't heard that excerpt. Well, I mean, obviously, I wrote that excerpt at yeah. some point, but I hadn't haven't thought about it since. Then hearing, it, I was like, oh, I'm kind of gripped. <laughs> it's so exciting. It's <laughs> it's all that like that's the exact crux beta. I was like, oh, I remember every move. It's like, oh, it gives me little tingles. It's so exciting. <laughs> How, ma- how many times did you do that move before you did it that time? So many. I mean, yeah, I practiced a lot. Like a hundred? Like a thousand? Yeah, uh, probably like a hundred or like more. Like a hundred. I mean, I think I had a day where I rappelled down from the summit and then did it ten times in a row uh, and then keep rappelling, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of days like that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I've done it a lot. And more importantly, I've done every variation of it where I fail. You know, I tried every different permutation right. of, like, these feet, but those don't work, and then different feet, and those don't work, and then different hands, and, you know, every version of it. So I failed on, like, every other version, and then practiced the, the correct <laughs> way a bunch of times as well. The one that finally worked. Yeah, well, I mean, there, you know, you could make other ways work, but you want to find the best way. <laughs> yeah, you do. It's weird, too, when you, because I saw the movie in the theater, and you still don't get the sense. I mean, it gives you a good sense, and but you just can't duplicate what 2,000 or 3,000 feet looks like in a theater. You can't, maybe, I don't know, I didn't see an IMAX. Yeah, I Did saw they an IMAX. It, uh, I mean, yeah, it's not the same as being there, but it was yeah. very impressive. Yeah. I mean, seeing Yosemite in IMAX, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I I didn't see it in IMAX, but man, it you you can't just capture, like the ground is so far away that it's like the first time I went parachuting, when the when the ramp of the of the aircraft goes down, the ground is so far away that it's not. It's almost you don't get that sense of height almost because mm-hmm. it's so far away. And I kind of got that feeling when I was watching uh, Free Solo in the theater. I was like, man, I believe me, like my my palms are sweating like everybody else. But I was sort of like, I kn- I've been I've been there. I know what that thing looks like. I've mm-hmm. walked around up there, and I you can't quite transmit it in any other media other than being there yeah no i agree i think that even for a lot of people who come to yosemite for the first time it's hard to appreciate the sense of scale because they can stand in el cap meadow and look up at el cap but without really understanding the scale of it they're just like oh that's a big piece of rock and then they see that you know if you use binoculars or telescope you you can point out climbers up high and they're like oh my god (laughs) that little tiny tiny speck of color is a person up there they're like that's crazy it is like yeah yeah, because when you're up on the top of El Cap, you know, the people are like little ants down below. Like, I mean, like dots. There's like, oh, there's like tons of little dots down there. Like, it's it, really big. Yeah, Yosemite is just glorious. Yeah. It's a glorious, glorious place. And what's crazy, too, is as crowded as, as it gets into, like, I would always go camping with my family up there. And it'd be so crowded, right? But even when it's crowded, it's no, it's not that big of a deal. Like, there's a big crowd there, and then you take 
four minutes of walking out totally and you, a quarter mile yeah. off, off the road and all of a sudden you're like we're alone in the wilderness we could die out here <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's just an incredible place hopefully we don't um hype too many people many more people to go there no I, I i think we should actually i'm i'm strongly into the crowds there because i basically i think that nobody cares about nature or protecting mm-hmm. nature unless they have positive nature experiences and i think yosemite is such a great accessible place for people to be awe-inspired you know, it's like, yeah. and the thing is, even when it is crowded, you can walk for 10, 15, 20 minutes and you can see no one. Cause Yosemite is a huge park. Yeah. And when we talk about it being crowded, we mean the main loop the main. on the main road in the very center, but the whole rest of the park is totally empty. Like I've done some very long day hikes there. Like every couple of years I'll get a little bee in my bonnet to mm. go out for an adventure and do like a 50 mile, like solo day hike sort of thing, like big circuits around the park. And you can do some of those big loops and see like four people the whole day. Yeah. And you're kind of like, everyone complains about crowding, but you're like, if you get off the beaten path, it's yeah. very empty. It's like wilderness. As soon as my kids were old enough, we started going a little bit more outside. Mm-hmm. And we, we have a hike that we do that we, we would not see anybody. Or maybe we'd see one other person. We'd go out, hike out for the day, spend the night up on the mountain. It's kind of the opposite side of Half Dome. So you're kind of looking mm-hmm. at Half Dome. It's that area. But then we'd see no one out there. And this yeah. is to be in the middle of the summertime. And so, yeah, it's big enough and challenging enough on some of those hikes, hikes out of there. You can be in switchbacks for, for two hours of switchbacks. Uh, but yeah, just amazing place, incredible. Um, so look, your your life has been very well documented in the movie. If you guys haven't seen this movie, just go see the movie. You're born and raised in Sacramento. You dropped out of college when you were not, you went to Berkeley for what, a year? Yeah, engineering at Berkeley for free. Long enough to know that I shouldn't go to college. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I, I was in the Navy, and the Navy sent me to college. Hmm. And when I got back to, you know, because I was in the SEAL teams, and I go to college for three years. And when I got back, you know, guys would be like, "Oh, you know, what'd you, what'd they teach you there?" And I was like, "It taught me never, ever, ever, ever get out of the SEAL teams ever, because because <laughs> the SEAL teams is just." such a fun job and then you see what the rest of the world is like and you're like no I don't want to do that could take me back to the where, where, where they send you to college the University of San Diego oh yeah okay so you were still at the same same place so yeah like, we're still here in San Diego but you know sitting in a classroom is was not conducive especially going from a job where you're outside I mean I always joke like I I didn't put on a shirt for work. You know what I mean? I was like a 35 year old man making $80,000 a year and I wouldn't wear a shirt like unless I really had to. Most of the time just walking around, you know, you're hanging out prepping stuff and getting gear ready. It's just a great job. It's outside, you're doing fun stuff, shoot machine guns, jumping out of airplanes, blowing things up. Like what else would you want to do? Well, for me, what else would I want to do? So you dropped out of college and you just went full van life climber mode. Yeah, basically. I mean, the, that that obviously glosses over the the years of sort of existential, like you know, especially because when I started just climbing full time, being a professional climber was much less of a thing. The mm-hmm. climbing industry was way smaller. There were way fewer gyms. There were way fewer climbers. It was less obvious that you could ever make a living as a climber. So I sort of thought I was just going to go climbing for a few years and see what happened. And I thought that maybe I'd become mountain guide or get into you know get into the industry in mm-hmm. some way or like do something outdoors. Um, but then it sort of eventually translated into into being a professional climber. But part of that is because the industry grew up yeah. sort of with me. Yeah, I was going to say you. I'd say you got into the industry <laughs> at, at this juncture. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. <laughs> now I'm firmly entrenched. You know, now I'm establishment. <laughs> but but when I w- dropped out of college, there just wasn't that much of an industry. I mean, there was. You know, there were the same outdoor manufacturers and things like that. But there's just way fewer people rock climbing. It was just less of a less of a thing. Yeah. 
did you do contests? I did, remember uh, that I, rock climbing contest thing that was going on for a bit. I which, mean, which, which one? Just the when it was be televised on ESPN or something, and it would be oh, speed yeah, races. Yeah, yeah, it, was, yeah, totally. it was more like an extreme sport type yep. thing. Yeah. Did you do that? Um, not really. So I did youth competitions, like you know, same as like little league or soccer stuff or whatever. Um, and I was I was fine. You know, I I did well in the regional stuff. I got second at nationals once, but that's only because the other really good kids had already aged out and gone on to adult <laughs> competitions. And it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I was, I was good, but I was never the best. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, wasn't dominating by any means, but, um, you know, I was, I was fine. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, now basically was never good enough to do the adult comps or go on to, cause Europe has a really well-established, uh, world cup competition scene. And so there have always been a lot of comps in Europe, mm-hmm. but less so in the U.S. And either way, I just never quite had the talent for it. I was like, and you talk about like in the book, and basically you started free soloing when you were a kid, just like because you didn't really want to talk to the other kids, or you're too shy to talk to the other kids and say, bit. "Hey, can I link up with you guys?" <laughs> yeah, especially once I started traveling a little bit, like living out of the van and going to destinations. Uh, so, like one of the places I started climbing was in Joshua Tree outside of LA. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at the time, like my then high school girlfriend was going to school in Southern California. So it was kind of like, oh, you go to Southern California, you go to Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree is also the sort of a birthplace of climbing in California. It's like has a lot of climbing culture, a lot of climbing history there. And so, you know, it's nice to sort of test yourself against these historic roots from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so, you know, I wanted to go to a destination like Joshua Tree, but then you get there and you don't know anybody. And, you know, this is kind of like pre-cell phones, pre-social, pre like there's no easy way to connect with strangers. Plus I was super shy and kind of a, kind of a loser and kind of a weird dude. <laughs> so it's a lot easier just to cruise around and, you know, climb things by yourself than to like walk around the campground talking to strangers. <laughs> you know, that's a, a weird thing. I, I have a kids, I've written a bunch of kids books and I have a kids podcast and I, I'll like take questions from kids. And one of the questions I'll get, you know, is like, Oh, I basically like, Hey, I don't, kids don't like me and that kind of thing and and one of the things that I kind of say back to kids that are in that position is like um being alone is okay like it's it's okay to be alone and you can it doesn't mean that you're bad it just means that you haven't found anyone that you're going to get along with yet yeah I'm just still hung up on the irony of you writing kids books when you're surrounded by knives <laughs> on this table. <laughs> like this is, I feel like we're in like a CIA offsite sort of thing, like this black box with knives everywhere. And you're like, yeah, I write kids books for fun. Like, Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the, the whole knife thing is, is it just kind of got out of control. It started with one fake knife from, from Echo Charles and then I tried to one up him and then we just ended up with this. We, we actually did at one point I brought a pistol <laughs> and then Echo was like, "Well, I don't know. That might be a bit, a bit much or whatever." So I guess we backed. We called uh, a truce, an yeah. arms truce. It's only bladed weapon, only edged weapons. Yeah. After the axe, too, that was like, okay, we gotta hit the brakes. A oh, I, bit. oh, I brought an axe too. No, someone sent an axe. I think. Oh, okay. Maybe you brought it. Oh. Yeah, because once we posted like a picture of like a couple knives on the table, then people were like, "I want my knife on the table." Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Like books and knives, it's a really interesting contrast. Yeah, I guess I guess it is sort of representative of my life in a way. Yeah, yeah books yeah. and knives. That's kind of. Nice. What's well, like I, I went to college when I when I did go to college when the Navy did send me to college. I was an English major. Oh yeah, and, and why? why why does the Navy want an English major blowing things up? Well, believe it or not, when you're in a leadership position in the military, you have to write a lot mm. and you have to read a lot. So you get directives that come down, and you have to 
be able to read those almost like a lawyer reads a document. But, but they didn't let you take any creative writing classes. <laughs> so like, they don't want you making anything up. <laughs> just doing nonstop reports. You're like adding little flourishes. <laughs> like it's a very dramatic experience we had. <laughs> um, I could turn my after actions report into a romance novel. Yeah, is what yeah, you're exactly. getting <laughs> uh, you have to write all the time. You have to write awards. You have to write evaluations of your troops. Mm-hmm. And so I had been an officer and so I was like, oh, I need to be good at this. And so that I just majored in English. And of course, everyone thinks how the, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do after? Yeah. Well, what are you going to do with your yeah, English what degree? What are you going to do with your English degree, you idiot? And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm going to write things. Eventually yeah. wrote a bunch of books, including yeah. kids' books. Uh, so very strange. I know. It is a little strange. My mom was an English teacher, too. Oh. So I don't know what that has to do with anything. My mom was an English teacher. My dad was a history teacher. And and you like books? So that's not like that books. big of a surprise. The weird thing is, bro, I... I did not read growing up. Like I did not. But you knew how to read. I knew how to read, but I wasn't a reader. You know kids now, yeah. I don't know how much of a reader you were growing up, but some kids. I was a reader. Yeah, some people just read. They read like crazy, and I didn't. I was like outside throwing rocks at like puddles, you know, just banging sticks together like a like a Cro-Magnon man. That was kind of, that was kind of. Kind of. This, so my wife and I have been talking about this kind of stuff a lot because we now have an almost two-year-old and mm-hmm. we're about to have our second child. And so we're talking about parent, you know, I feel like parenting is just starting now that our daughter's getting old enough that you can actually yeah. parent a tiny bit. Yeah. She's less of a blob and more of a real person that yeah. does stuff. But it's interesting the, you know, I mean, what you're describing, it's like how much is nature versus nurture and I feel like there's some basics there where it's like, obviously you could read, you know, your parents, if yep. you're being raised by a professor basically, it's like yeah. you, you learn how to. And I think, uh, I think about that with climbing with my daughter, where even if she's not into climbing and she doesn't become a climber, that's fine. But she's for sure going to know the basics. She's going to know how to repel. She's going to feel yeah. comfortable doing all the things and whether she chooses to or not, that's up to her. But so I, I've been through this before. Um, I, I'm really into jujitsu. As you can see, walked around my gym like this. Jujitsu has been a huge part of my life. And when my kids were, born and then being raised by me, I wanted them to be into jiu-jitsu. I wanted them to love jiu-jitsu as much as I did. I wanted them to get the gifts of jiu-jitsu that I got mm-hmm. and probably the same way you feel, like you want your daughter to be able to have the same thing that you got out of climbing, this amazing well, No, that's the things I don't know if I want okay. her. I, okay. I, it's not that I want her to have. I mean, it'd be great if she does, but... I just feel like there's a minimum threshold of competence mm-hmm. that has to come because that's part of being in the family. Mm-hmm. But whether she chooses to to be into it or not, that's up to her. You know, if she's cool. more into reading, that's fine. If yep. she's into music, like great. I think the goal of parenting. I mean, I don't know yet. You know, yeah. You've raised four yeah. kids, but you tell me. But but you know, is to help your child find the thing that they love doing. That's. that's but then there's certain things that part of being in the family is that she's going to be comfortable hiking outside. She's going to be able to repel off cliffs. Like that's just. I mean, you can't do family activities if you don't know how to repel. Yep. Yeah. It's you're you're walking a thin line, my friend. Because you're like, oh, they could. No, I'll support whatever they want to do as long as they're repelling off of cliffs. <laughs> no, what? but you can you can be taking your kid yeah. to soccer every weekend. But then you know when you go on family outings, you're still doing family stuff. Yeah. In in the same way, I suspect your family had a minimum requirement of like you must be able to read and do well in school or do whatever. You yeah. know, it's like you've got to yeah. be minimum competence, and then beyond that, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, like blow it, things up. It sounds like you've got it dialed because what I did was too much jujitsu on them, pushed it too hard on them. And they went through a phase, thank God, they're all like full on into jujitsu now, but they went, they, except for my my son went, didn't go, he wasn't allowed to go through a phase of no jujitsu. My daughters went through a phase of no jujitsu, my son was like, no, this is what we're doing. The minimum family standard for the boy was like very high. <laughs> six days a week of jujitsu. That, that seems like yeah. a lot, right? <laughs> it is, it's too much. And, and really the key thing, and this is, 
if there's any advice, and I used to, look, we've been doing this podcast for I think seven years, seven, eight years, eight years. and in the beginning I wouldn't like give parenting advice because my kids were what? 13, 15, whatever, nine. I was like, the jury's not out yet. <laughs> I might not know in a whole what I'm doing. Uh, I feel a lot more comfortable now in, uh, putting this out and, and giving advice around raising kids. Uh, the main thing is, and this is total common sense, unless you're an idiot parent like I was, is make things fun. Hmm. If you make it fun, if you, they have fun, then Everything is, they just want to do it more and then they get better at it. And then when they're better at it, they like doing it more because they are successful at it. Totally. It just becomes, it's just a, a better way to roll. You don't want to be like, like I was. We would spend five hours on Saturdays and Sundays here at this gym <laughs> training. <laughs> no, like, slightly psycho. <laughs> slightly psycho. <laughs> Slightly psycho. I'm like, so, I love climbing, and I still don't think I'm gonna push uh, push anybody quite that hard. Yeah, and and that's the cool thing is eventually, you know, the kids kind of will. They're watching you all the time, and they'll see the joy that it brings you, mm-hmm. and they'll see what you've gotten out of it, and how much you enjoy it, and they'll be like, "Oh, I want to try that too." And as long as you're not like, "You need to do that again. You need to run that route again." Totally. <laughs> don't go full psycho like I did. <laughs> I don't recommend it. It's a really hard balance too because. With your kids, you, let's face it, if I was like, okay, you can, you can plot out the perfect life for your kid. You could probably do, a, you know, a normal person could go, okay, here's what you should do, and here's how you'll be successful and happy in life according to what I think happiness is. You could probably plot that out pretty well. Probably anyone could. They're people, and they're they're yeah. The, they have their own yep. their own thing. That's what I I, I always say. I mean, even as a two year old, we're starting to see that with our daughter, which oh, yeah. is kind of a fierce, independent woman. You're like, you, you follow your heart, you do, <laughs> you do what you want to do. Yeah, they're going to yeah. be the way I explain it to adults now is they're going to be who they are, not who you want them to be. Totally. And the more you just open up your mind to that, is the the easier it's going to go. Actually, I've, I had this idea that I think would be a good book. I'll just give it to you because you obviously write books. You uh-huh. can have it. But um, but it's a concept I've I've invented. I think that uh, that I'm calling downstream parenting, where you just do everything with the current. You know, you just go with the current, like yeah. everything that's like chill. You know, within grounds of sort of safety and and mm-hmm. you know some basic constraints. But every time. I find myself trying to stop my daughter from doing something or wanting her to do a certain thing. I'm like, is it because I want her to do that thing or is it because she actually needs to do that thing? You know, I'm sort of like, you know what, if like, if she wants to do something and it's not dangerous and it's not going to like cause harm to the property or whatever, then like let her do the thing. It's downstream. Just go with the current. And part of that I think is because she's young enough that you can't reason with her anyway and like teach her things in exactly. So I'm kind of like, you know, why fight it all the time? Just like, let it happen. Let it happen. Go with the current. And the minimum standard that you talked about, that that can be used as well, especially it's really important, just like in leadership, it's really important to explain to people why you need to do something. Mm -hmm. So if you've got your daughter and you're like, hey, you need to know how to do this stuff. Oh, why do I need to be able to, you know, uh, repel off a cliff? cliff. Why do I need to be able to do that? And just, well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, you don't know what kind of situation you're going to be in. Number two, like the confidence that'll bring you. Number three, the opportunities that will, this will give you and the access that you'll have to look. So you just have yeah. to have some reasonable things. Number three, the odds are she's going to have to rescue her dad at some point. <laughs> get, gets into something weird and she's got to go run back to the garage and yeah. get a rope and sort him out. Yeah. And, and, then, like, and then I was recently having a conversation where 
you know, what if you can't, what if you don't have a good why? For instance, like clean your room. Why Why do I need to clean my room? And you say, well, and there's some legitimate reasons like, well, if you need to find something, you'll be able to find it quicker if your room mm-hmm. is clean. Or if, the, if we, there's a fire in the house and the, and the firemen show up and they're tripping and falling over your toys, that could make it really hard for them. And and those are, both those are a little bit of a stretch. And in, so- In our case, it's a, you don't want to make habitat for the cockroaches. <laughs> okay. The desert, you get cockroaches in well, the house. Well, there you go. Kind of like, you just don't want like creepy crawlies and all your stuff. So, so you can find legitimate reasons and then occasionally you find something where you don't have a legitimate reason. Yeah, but actually, so I'm, I personally basically don't do anything like, so I leave, like I'm in my pajamas right now because I'm like, I'm staying indoors today. I just stay in my comfy clothes all day. And so basically at my house, I have my pile next to my bed of my outdoor clothes, which are really, really dirty. And then my indoor clothes, which are my pajamas. And I just alternate, you know, throughout the day, I go from my pajamas to my outdoor clothes, my pajamas again. And my wife has just given up fighting on it. It's just, I have my two piles next to the bed. That's all I use. And I use the same for like a month or two and it's totally fine. And I'm sort of like, I suspect that our children will get away with sort of the same routines. Cause yeah. like I've, I've already done away with like, like my family always did like, you take out the trash every day on trash day. Like even if it's not totally full and I'm like, well, that seems stupid because it's not full. <laughs> and so now at our house, you know, some of the trash cans get emptied like once every six or eight weeks or something. Cause they never fill. And you're like, that's fine. And yeah. I'm like, you know, my life is easier for it. The, well, you're already in the place where I was going, which is yeah, downstream. This if what I'm you saying, don't, it's all downstream. if you can't give your kid a legitimate reason why to do something, yeah, then don't do it. Then, then what's then? Ask yourself. Go look in the mirror and like, wait, is this just my ego that wants yeah. the room to be clean? Yeah, exactly. The garbage if you're doing to be taken it for out? control sake, like yeah. you're just telling them to do a thing because you want them to do the thing. You're like, that's douchey because yeah. you wouldn't want somebody else doing that to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like uh, the it's like the golden rule: the two year old, you know, it's like mm-hmm. don't tell her to do something that I don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as you're pursuing rock climbing, you drop out of college. It's not really a, there's no real future in it at the time. How are you explaining that to people? How are you explain that to your parents? How are you, how, how are you talking to explain that? Was it the same thing that you just said? Like, Hey, I'm gonna do this for a few years and I'll figure something else out. Kind of. I mean, when I initially dropped out of college, I wasn't dropping out of college. I was just taking a semester off. Um, and actually at the time I'd qualified for the youth world cup. So like this competition in, in, uh, I'd gotten second at national. So I qualified for international. So I was like, Oh, I'll take a semester off. I'll go to Europe and do this competition and then, you know, and then travel around and climb a little bit. And then I just never went back to college. <laughs> it was like, turns out <laughs> traveling and climbing is, you know, was, was more of my thing than, than, than class. When did you realize you were good? Oh, uh, it's taken, I, I don't know. I'm like, it's taken a very long time. And even then it's like, what is good? Because climbing mm. is a really broad, broad sport. And so most of my friends and peers who are, you know, professional climbers or serious climbers are sort of better than me at lots of other things mm. or other aspects of it. And so, you know, I still struggle with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, obviously now I'd accept that I'm much better than average, <laughs> but <laughs> but still way worse than most of my friends at, at many things. So you're kind of like, well, this is still always working on it. Did you... Did you, when you were trying to get better, when you were trying to improve, was it just based on like, hey, I'm looking at a route, I, I can't do it right now, I'm gonna work until I can do this route, and you're just doing that over and over again, is that? Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. And then part of it is reading books, climbing history, you know, old school climbing media, like VHS stuff, where you're like, <laughs> oh, that's cool, somebody did this thing. You know, I mean, just basically, yeah, what you're describing, like inspiration of whatever kind, leading you to, to push yourself until you can do that kind of thing. And when you're looking at, you go to Joshua Tree and there's a, a route that you try and climb and you can't climb it and you fail. Do you, do you, you go back a month later, you go back a month later, you go back a month later and finally you're able to pull this thing off? Yeah, that's kind of the idea. I mean, the thing about climbing is that 
it's hard to know what failure means because you fall off roots all the time. And when you're climbing with a rope, this is like normal climbing. If you're like bouldering when you have pads or you're climbing with ropes and you know, you have protection that catches you, that's kind of normal day to day, like your bread and butter climbing. I mean, you fall off routinely, like that's part of the process. And so you only really fail if you give up and you walk away from it and you never come back. But falling off is, is fine. That's mm-hmm. like, that's, that's normal. It's just that, you know, like you don't characterize that as failing per mm-hmm. se. You're just sort of like, oh, I'm still training. I'm still practicing. I'm still learning on this route. And then eventually you do it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the mindset is always, I don't know, it's all sort of cliche, you know, like growth mindset sort of stuff. Yeah. But that's, but I think that's sort of an integral, you know, that's sort of foundational to climbing is that you're always like, anytime you fall off something, you're like, oh, that's fine. I'm like practicing. I'm learning. I'm refining the moves. I'm figuring it all out. And eventually I'm going to do it. And you could when you were younger, could you track your growth or you're like, Oh, four months ago, I couldn't do this route. And now I can, I'm better now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always so much more fun in a sport when you're at the, the beginning of the growth curve, you know, <laughs> it's like you improve really quickly and yeah, it's, it's a little more painstaking now. Did you do, did you like exercise specifically? Did you start to do fingerboarding in your bedroom or anything like that when you were younger trying to get better? Um, no, so actually, I mean, I grew up climbing before there were fingerboards, really. Damn. I mean, some people did, but it just wasn't a thing that you could just buy online like you can now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there wasn't even online to buy <laughs> to buy the things. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, the most elite climbers still use tactics like that, but it wasn't normal enough for a suburban kid growing up in Sacramento to to know about that, really. But um, but I had a pull-up bar in my door frame. Like, so through high school, I was doing 150 pull-ups before bed every night. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this will make me a better climber in sets of like 10, 20, 30. But, um, in retrospect, it didn't really make me a better climber, but, but I was able to do one arm pull-ups after that. I was kind of like, oh, you do a shitload of pull-ups. You I, I can attest that I was always really into pull-ups and would do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pull-ups and it did never translate to my climbing. I'd go climb with <laughs> someone that actually knew how to climb and you'd just be a total idiot. Yeah. Like your strength, it means nothing. Just like any, any sport, you know, you look at these sports, whatever they are, and you think, oh, that. I could probably do that. No, there's so much technique behind it. It's totally ridiculous. Totally. And climbing is, well, I think climbing is just one of those many sports that people look at it and they don't realize how how hard it is, how technical it is, yeah, how much technique matters, how, how much subtlety there is in the body position, the movement, how you yeah. place your feet, how you adjust your hips. Like, yeah, there's a lot to it. Yeah, there's way more to it than it. Sort of like boxing, right? Boxing, you think guys are just throwing punches, but there's so much going on there. Jiu-jitsu, you look at and you go, oh, there's a lot going on in it. You can see that you don't know what's happening, right? Mm. In rock climbing, you're like, oh, hold on to that thing. Okay, I, I, I can, as a, as a primate, I can understand what that means. Kind of like as a primate, I can understand I punch, <laughs> punch in the head, mm. and it, it makes sense. Uh, an, an uma plata in jiu-jitsu doesn't make sense to a primate. It's like one of those things you go, oh, this doesn't, I, I, there's something I don't understand. Like, what there. is an uma plata? It's a, just like a, a move with your body where you're taking the person's arm and you're wrapping your legs around a certain way and moving your hips. Like it's a very complex move mm. that you would never think of as a primate. You wouldn't mm. think of it as how to win a fight. And it's the same thing with boxing. You look at boxing, oh, they're just swinging. You go, if you have ever boxed against a good boxer, someone that was like a Golden Gloves boxer, or much less a pro or an amateur boxer, like I've boxed against professional boxers, you're an idiot, I'm an idiot, right? I just, you're just getting touched, like there's nothing you can do about it. And yet, people watch boxing, they go, oh, move your head a little bit, punch him in the head. You know, it's, there's so much going on. And that's what, that's why, 
you know, the my early experiences with climbing was like, oh, I can do a bunch of pull-ups. I can do many pull-ups. I will climb rock. <laughs> and it was like the most ridiculous, uh, pathetic thing. I was telling you earlier, I, I was climbing a rock out in, in Mission Gord with one of my buddies, and I was like probably, I don't know, maybe 25 feet up, something like that. And I'm coming over the top, like almost done. And it was a sloping kind of rock, and I am gonna fall. Like I am so freaking gonna fall. And I, I used my face and like chin and face to like secure and smear on the rock and kind of inch my hands up more. And I was like, dude, I am dumb. I am really a dumb person. <laughs> or you're innovative, you know. Yeah. The, 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 the face smear is a is a new kind of technique. <laughs> Though, though everybody's done things like that when they get desperate enough, start wedging their body into things and like, oh God. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I ran into somebody at the Base Hell Cap this season. We were hiking down from from something and uh, he was climbing a sort of notorious off with like a off-size crack where his whole body's wedged in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he just described an experience where he'd basically gotten bouted and then wound up uh, clipping off his helmet for protection, like leaving his helmet behind wedged in the crack with the rope slung around it as like, well, maybe the helmet will catch me if I fall, <laughs> which you're like, the helmet's not gonna freaking catch you. Like, you're for sure gonna die. But now I think of that as my sort of gold standard of, or, you know, the sort of low bar of like things are going sideways, but you just like leave your helmet behind as, as oh, potential man. protection. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, maybe it'll catch me. <laughs> it's like a freaking little plastic uh, bucket. You're like, it's for sure gonna break. Yeah, you're gonna die. not gonna work out well. Yeah, that's not gonna save you. Scary. Uh, as you're, like like going moonlight buttress which again go on if you're listening to this go on youtube and just go look at moonlight buttress and go look at what that freaking thing looks like uh how'd that come across like what that's what what made that sort of like this will be the first big one well so that i mean it was it was a logical progression in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways so um, so the first like big solos that I did, Astroman and the Rostrum, those had actually been done in the mid 1980s by this guy Peter Croft, who's a famous Canadian climber and total legend of Yosemite, mm-hmm. and so he'd been a personal hero forever. And so there was kind of a roadmap as to how to do that, and those represented the edge of big wall soloing at the time, really. Like those were kind of the biggest, hardest things. But so this thing, Moonlight Buttress, is only slightly bigger. It's like almost the same size as Astroman, like roughly a thousand feet tall but significantly harder technically, like a harder number on it, you know, bigger number, so it's harder. But the style actually is is uh, very similar. It's just one crack feature that splits this buttress straight up the middle. So even though it's harder, which means your forearms get more pumped, like your muscles get more fatigued, but it's, uh, but it's still a similar style, like the, it still feels secure. Mm-hmm. Like if your bones are locked into the crack, mm-hmm. like, you know, basically if you have the fitness for it, you don't feel like you're gonna fall off. You know, and, and that's an important thing when we're talking about free soloing is the differentiating between the different styles. Because if you're climbing a crack, it means that your your fingers, your hands, or whatever, your feet are like wedged into the crack. And as long as you don't get too tired, there's really not a reason for you to fall off. And so, and fitness is relatively easy to build as a climber. Whereas technique, you know, so, but contrasted against like, say, crack climbing, you have like face climbing or like slab climbing, where it's just a ball, kind of what you're describing in Mission Gorge, where you're just like mm-hmm. crawling over the top of some rock. And so if you're imagining climbing something that's like a bald, smooth, blank rock, no matter how big your muscles are, it's still all about how carefully you position your toes, how carefully you balance, like how well you move your hips. You know, like those are the things that you can practice for sure and you can improve at, but you just can't train the same way and you never feel safe doing it. You never feel secure. Like no matter how strong you mm-hmm. get, it's still gonna be really freaking scary. <laughs> 
So anyway, Moonlight kind of hit that, that sweet spot where I was like, this is roughly the same size as what I've done, just a little bit harder, but it, harder in a way that's secure and, and controllable. And then that said, I'd also just come off several months of climbing in Indian Creek in Utah, which is like home to these perfect splitter sandstone cracks, so like exactly the same style as what Moonlight is. And so I just spent three months there where I'd basically done every hard thing in the desert at the time and was feeling like like a boss on sandstone. You know, I was like, oh, I feel good. And then, you know, it, but actually it was interesting though because I had the sort of this nagging elbow injury at the time and had been climbing less than I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to just be going full bore, but I was kind of hurting. And so I'd have to like rest a couple of days and then I'd go out and do something really hard, and but then still be hurting. I was like, damn it, you know, it was really frustrating. And so it's kind of that good combination of, being kind of pent up and like antsy and chomping in the bit, but also feeling really fit in a way. And I mean, I think part of that led to moonlight mm-hmm. where you're like, I really want to do something rad, but I'm kind of hurting, but I'm really good at the style right now. And so then moonlight was like the obvious thing, the obvious thing. Um, and, and I'd done it with a rope and a partner, uh, two years before. So I knew I could do it. I'd done it first try with, with this partner and you know, like I knew that it was a beautiful, inspiring, like perfect route and like yeah right style and everything did you do it a few times before like immediately before yeah so i went there by myself and then i spent two days working on it um and each day i basically climbed the whole route twice Mm -hmm. so and and moonlight is also really convenient in that there's a paved tourist trail that goes up the back the uh the (laughs) the uh, angels landing trail which is like one of the most famous trails in the country or in zion anyway it's a really really cool trail but that goes up to the top of moonlight and so it's super easy to work because you just stroll up this path and then rappel down the face uh, in in the movie Alone on the Wall, a guy says, uh, and I don't know who it is, but he says, um, the most mind blowing thing in climbing ever when when you climb when you climb that. Um, th- this is a weird thing. Well, at least from from the from outside the climbing world, it's a weird thing. So you climb Rostrum, you climb Astro Man, you climb Moonlight Buttress, and you tell one of your butt, you basically tell your buddy that you climbed it, and then. He kind of posts it on the the interwebs, and that's sort of it. Like no one, no one took pictures of you. No, there's no video of it. I, Echo and I were talking about it yesterday. Like, what is it about rock climbing? Like, if if I if I posted on the internet today, hey, everyone, just want to let you know, I squatted a thousand pounds. People I'd, would be like, I believe it. I don't know. I don't know if that's hard or not, but, but I think you could. But the rest of the community would be like, we want video. We want to see. We want to see what you did. We see. You know, we like, want to come and check the weights. Like we want to see the. We want to measure the weights to make sure this is true. Can you squat a thousand pounds? No. Can no. anybody squat a thousand pounds? Yeah, some people can. But it, you know, it's a. It's, it's it's. Does the bar bend when you squat oh, a thousand the bar, pounds? The bar definitely <laughs> bounces. Oh, that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, but it's but that's here so you are. Right. You're doing. The, you're achieving these things. And I, it sounded like uh, Moonlight Buttress, there were some people that were like, oh, well, you know, really, like... Actually, people were skeptical, not of the climb, really, but w- because it was posted on on uh, April Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. Or you know, people were like, oh, that's a funny fake news story. Mm-hmm. Right, know, and then, right. And then they're like, wait, is that a real news story? <laughs> like, what the fuck? But nobody ever was like, oh, I, we don't think he did it. Oh, so people like, don't question no, it. No, but I think climbing, I mean, there are a few things going on. I know what you mean. Yeah. And, and that's starting to change a little bit for climbing as well. Um, where I think if you posted like truly outlandish claims nowadays, people would sort of expect video evidence or, or something, or at least like a GPS track or, you know, depending on what exactly you're doing. 
But I mean, the nature of climbing is that you're normally doing the climbs in remote places without service, without people. I mean, particularly with soloing, you know, by definition, you're by yourself. So, you know, I mean, you are really are just taking people at their word. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big part of climbing. But part of it is also that if people don't believe you, you can just go do it again. You know, if the mm-hmm. rock is still there, the in the same way that if someone doesn't believe that you lifted a thousand pounds, you're like, oh, I can just do it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or if not lift a thousand, you could at least lift like 950 or something mm-hmm. and be like, you know, it's close enough that you can imagine that on a peak day I did what I said I did. Yeah, except for it's, you know. well, that's a little messed up because close enough on a free solo isn't no, really no, that but, cool. But what I mean with, with close enough is that, you know, people can see you soloing other routes. They can see that you could do, yep. you know. I mean, in, in my case, I mean, especially now, I've done I've done a lot of soloing, and, <laughs> and I think maybe I, I counted this. I have a list on my phone, actually, of, of things that I've done that are sort of firsts, like what you're describing with, uh, you know, Moonlight and Half Dome and things mm-hmm. like that. And so I've done something like 35 routes that were sort of like firsts or things that hadn't been done before. And of those, I filmed on roughly a third of them or, like, went back and took photos on them later or... Or like in the case of El Cap with the film Free Solo, you know, we actually, it's a full-on documentary film where they Mm -hmm. shot the real thing. But so, you know, there's maybe a third of the things I've done that there's evidence for. And then there are the other two thirds that there's no evidence. But, you know, occasionally somebody would see you or you Mm -hmm. occasionally you pass people on the route. Like as you're climbing, you just climb over other people and they're just left being like, shit, what a day, you know, like that's, that's crazy. That must be the. That must be the craziest thing in the world, being two thousand feet up on a wall and have Alex roll on by. Like, <laughs> can I can I pass you guys? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's and funny. What was, what was the climb where you borrowed somebody's chalk bag? Yeah, that was, was on the nose. Yeah, yeah, I forgot my chalk bag. <laughs> what a botch. <laughs> but yeah, but I got it back to him. <laughs> I left it on the tree for him at the top. <laughs> but so he got it back, you know, four days later, or whatever, when he got to the top. <laughs> You mentioned that too. You mentioned it real quickly, reenactment, mm-hmm. right? Which I didn't e- even being like I said, like a, a rock climbing sort of adjacent fan guy. I didn't realize that when I was watching Alone on the Wall the movie, that you, th- those were reenactments. Yeah, though I mean reenactment. I don't know if that's even because you are up there soloing again. Yeah. You know, it's like you're. It's, yeah. The difference is just that you're only soloing key parts of the route, and you know you're soloing the things. Typically, you're choosing the parts of the route that look the coolest but mm-hmm. feel the most secure. Mm-hmm. The things that you can do on command, because anytime you're doing it for a camera, you have to wait for the camera guy to get in position, and you're like hanging there, and then they're like, "Hold on, gotta change batteries," and you're like, "Okay, TikTok," <laughs> you know, like I'm getting pumped, you know, and then they're like, "Oh, hold on, gotta change lenses," and you're like, "TikTok, TikTok," you know, yeah. like I'm, I'm, my arms are tired, so. You know, it's not like you're exactly reenacting. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like it's fake. It's yeah, I was going to say, it's not like you're not <laughs> yeah, doing exactly. it because you're the thing there. Is, whatever you're seeing, like, you are seeing photos and video of free soloing, but it's normally construed or you're sort of portrayed as like, this is the real thing. And you're yeah. like, well, this is actually the day that we had the crew and went back and shot it. Though that's not the case for the film Free Solo, which is like an actual documentary yeah. where we did the real thing. And there are a couple other films like that where... Like occasionally it makes more sense to shoot the real thing, mm-hmm. but most of the time it makes more sense to just go and do it whenever it makes sense for you weather-wise and fitness-wise and conditions-wise and then to go back and shoot whenever it's convenient mm-hmm. for the whole crew. This feels like the kind of thing that would make me, I don't get mad, but this feels like the kind of thing that would make me mad. <laughs> like I get done with something awesome, they're like, hey, you gotta do it again because we didn't get a good shot. Yep. Well, that's that's the nature of being a professional, though. Yeah, it's like being good at doing the thing just makes you a good climber. Being a good professional climber means that you can then tie back in and do it again, and like get the crew up into position and like deal. 
you know, I mean, to me, that's like, that's the nature of being a professional. Well, the also in, in these various movies, they'll talk to the camera guys, or I've seen documentaries about the guys that were making the movies and mm-hmm. they'll all feel kind of the same way that I feel. They'll be like, dude, like you don't have to do this section or, uh, can you do that? But they don't really want to ask you and they don't feel comfortable asking. They don't want to put like it. They don't feel good about it either. Well, this is, yeah, that's, that's the challenge of shooting any of this kind of stuff is that the crew doesn't want to be there. You don't want the crew to be there. Everybody feels uncomfortable depending. And that's why typically when you're reshooting something, you choose the parts that are the most secure, you know, basically the safest Mm -hmm. because you don't want to traumatize the crew. Like you don't want to fall on a, you don't want to die on a work day. You know, like, <laughs> no. like I might be willing no. to risk death for my personal yeah. projects, but I'm not going to risk death to like get the, get an ad for a jacket or something, you know, <laughs> you're like, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. You're like, you know, I'm up there like shooting uh, photos of a chalk bag or whatever. And you're like, yeah, isn't this a great shot? And you're like, no, yeah. I'm going to risk it. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm not taking any, any risk for that stuff. It's, it's wild. I was watching, uh, I was watching you climb the Phoenix, mm-hmm. right? And you grab this photographer dude, like morning of, like, hey, you want to go shoot me? I'm going to go do some climbing. He's like, okay. And then you rappel down into the Phoenix. And then like, hey, can you just haul all my stuff back up? And he has like an image of him pulling up everything, your rack, your harness, and everything but your chalk bag. And this dude is, you can see his camera shaking. <laughs> his camera, does this make him, him not a professional? He's like camera <laughs> shaking. It was like f- freaking... But what's weird about that was like you rappelled down. Mm-hmm. The rope is already on you. It's like a perfect top rope scenario for you to do all your yeah. stuff and climb up there. But it's like, no, I'm going to do this. And Sometimes you choose the challenge. Yeah, you choose the challenge. But I mean, that's another interesting example, though, because sometimes you film on things because it's more convenient for the experience itself. Because like if I wanted to free solo the Phoenix, but I didn't have somebody with me, didn't have somebody shooting, let's say then it means I would rappel down, tie all my stuff to the rope, and the rope would just be kind of dangling behind you, and that would totally compromise the nature of the experience mm-hmm. because you know that if you fell off, you could just jump back and try to catch the rope. And maybe you would, maybe you <laughs> wouldn't, but but either way, you would feel like You're there's one of the potential. few people in the world that like takes takes comfort in the fact that, well, if I fall, I can possibly jump, jump backward back and, and catch a 10-millimeter rope. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there are stories of people catching ropes like that, and you know, it, it can happen. It, it would require a degree of luck, and and you'd burn the shit out of yourself, but, but you'd probably, you, you could potentially survive that way. And so it would just change the, mm-hmm. the nature of the experience. And mm-hmm. there are several solos that I've done that I took photos or video on because I wanted somebody there like actually a different uh, route in Yosemite called Cosmic Debris, there, there's still photos of it. Actually, the guy Mikey, who you mentioned in the, my, the excerpt mm-hmm. from my book, who was yeah. shooting the long shot in free solo, he, um, he's a photographer and I've worked with him a ton over the years. But he, I recruited him once to shoot photos of me on this crack because it's basically a crack to nowhere. It just goes up this blank wall and then just ends. And so if you were free soloing, you would just get to the top and be like, well, now I just have to climb right <laughs> back down. And it's really, really hard. Actually, it's the hardest thing that's ever been sold in Yosemite grade-wise, uh, like technically. And so, you know, I asked him to basically go up there and like get into position with a rope and his camera ahead of time. And then I could just show up whenever I wanted, climb it. And then when I was done, we would just rappel down together. God. And you're like, oh, it just makes the whole experience more doable. Yeah. And, you know, I probably could have rigged some other way to do it totally alone, but it just kind of makes sense to have your buddy there with, mm-hmm. and take a picture. Yeah. This is Mikey in the down in the meadow when you're climbing who's like, can't look at the camera. He's looking yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, half Dome. That was like the next obvious thing. Yeah. Yeah, basically it was. So Half Dome was the next obvious step because it was – bigger 
and sort of more rad, like more intimidating, like just bigger and more awe-inspiring. But actually, it's graded technically easier than Moonlight. Mm-hmm. So the, the the difficulty grade is technically easier, though the style, as it turns out, is much less secure and, and, and sort of more difficult in a way. But um, it basically just felt like the next big thing. You know, it's only a little bit harder than the Rosterman Astroman, but it's but it's like having the two of them stacked on top of mm-hmm. each other. It's like really big. 2,000 feet. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's 2,000 feet high, but it's 2,500 feet above the valley floor. So you're like 4,000 feet up above Yosemite. It like feels, feels very airy. You know, you're up there, you're like, oh, this is, it's, it's pretty mega. Bro, 30 feet sounds pretty big to me right now. Yeah. Well, honestly, the difference between like 50 feet and 1,000 feet doesn't start to matter that much because yeah. like, you know, if you, if you fall more than 50 feet or so, you're going to die. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> I got to go to the book on this one. <clears throat> this is so now you're like 1800 feet up something you're almost the top. You have a little bit of a situation, we'll say. You say I climbed into the upper crux feeling good about doing things legit. And then I ground to a halt. I'd expected to find some sort of different hold or sequence from the one I'd used 2 days earlier which had felt pretty desperate, but perhaps I'd done it wrong. This time in the same position, on the same holds, I realized there were no better options. I had a moment of doubt, or maybe panic. It was hard to tell which. Although I'd freed the pitch maybe two other times the year before, I could remember nothing of the sequence or holds, perhaps because there aren't any. (laughs) It's very dramatic writing, I'm like, oh God. A gigantic old oval carabiner hung from a bolt about two inches above the pathetic ripple that was my right hand hold. I alternated back and forth, chalking up my right hand and then my left, switching feet on marginal smears to shake out my calves. I couldn't make myself commit to the last terrible right foot smear I needed to snag the jug. I'd stalled out in perhaps the most precarious position of the whole route. I considered grabbing the beaner. With one pull, I'd be up and off. Taurus, oblivious laughter spilled over the lip. Tons of people were up on top. I was in a very private hell. I stroked the beaner a few times, fighting the urge to grab it, but also thinking how foolish it would be to die on a slab, sliding and bouncing almost 2,000 feet to my death when I could so easily save myself. My calves were slowly getting pumped. I knew I should do something soon, since treading water was only wearing me out. Down climbing never occurred to me. I was going up. It was just a matter of how high, one way or another. But now, real fear seized me. Once again, I took a deep breath, studied the holds in front of me, and tried to think rationally about what I had to do. Although I never wanted to be on that slab in the first place, I had to finish what I'd started without invalidating my ascent. Finally, I compromised. I kept my hand on the pathetic ripple, but straightened my right index finger just enough for the tip of my last pad to rest on the bottom of the oval. My thought was, if my foot blew, I could snatch the beaner with one finger and check my fall. I smeared my foot, stood up, and grabbed the jug. No problem. I was delivered, free from my little prison, where I'd stood silently for a good five minutes. And I hadn't cheated by grabbing the beaner. I took the final 5-7 slab to the summit at a near run, 
20 or more hikers sat on the edge of the precipice, witnessing my final charge. But no one said a word. No yells, no pictures, nothing. Maybe they thought I was a lost hiker. Maybe they couldn't conceive of where I'd come from, or maybe they just didn't give a shit. When I mantled onto the actual top, I was met with a flood of humanity. A hundred odd people spread across the summit plateau. Tourists ate lunch next to me. They made out, took scenic photos, people everywhere. It was so weird. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Half Dome, you can, you can hike up Half Dome, like a normal person can, hike, can get permits and hike up Half Dome, and they got these cables that you can kind of go up in between, so there's normal people up there. Though that was written pre-permitting system. Oh, okay. So that's why, it's funny because I mentioned it's how crowded it was. No, no, so it used to be a zoo, and now with the permits, it's way God. less zooey. Yeah, because nowadays it's rare to see so many people on top at any given time because the their permits. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, yeah, hearing that, I was like, oh, I kind of forget because there have been permits for quite a long time now. Yeah. But yeah, back then it was just free for all, and so the cables would get packed, and there'd be so many people on top, which is it got slightly dangerous, and yeah. so they instituted the permitting system. But. So yeah, and I bet people didn't even like comprehend what had just happened. Like you just show up, they kind of like, oh, it's yeah. It's it's funny because when you climb Half Dome with a partner in climbing gear, and you have all your gear jangling on your harness as you get over the top, then when you get over, people are like, oh my god, you know how many days do you spend on the wall? That's incredible. Like, what do you do? But when you top out free soloing, you know, I don't even have a shirt on. I've got like nothing. I'm just sort of like, ah, you know, people are like, that guy looks psycho. You know, like, like kids don't make eye contact. You know, it's like, like, who's that guy? You know, it's like a whole different vibe. Um, that's, that's that moment right there, right? Where you're like kind of not feeling the next move really is what it is. And the, it's, if you don't, if you've never done any rock climbing, what you're doing with your feet. I don't think I've ever even felt freaking the way it's supposed to feel like when I've rock climbed. So what you're doing, Echo Charles, is you're taking your foot, you got like rock climbing shoes on, but there's very little to, it's not like a step. It's not even like an edge. It's just like smooth. It's like a a blank ripple. Yeah, and you're just kind of. I'm looking around the table for something like comparable, like ripple wise. Just. But it's just. Like this right here. Tiny. No, I was like, I was trying to think about like this part of the lens. Oh, you know what I mean? Like not on the edge, but like on the part that's just slightly slanted. Yeah, yeah. We're like, oh, if you just, and because climbing shoes uh, are, you know, really tight with like a precise edge to them and they have rubber that's like stickier than the yeah. normal shoe. And so if you just imagine putting your big toe against that ripple and like pushing against that and then sort of balancing just right, it's like, Dang. it's all. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying that that's a style of climbing that you know you can practice and you can prepare for, but no matter how strong you are, it doesn't make it feel any easier. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, so it's a, it's a tough thing, like it's a tough style to free solo because no matter, you know, there's it always feels a little, little on edge. You're like, what if my foot slips? Yeah, because I mean, the, what's the term you use? Blow if your foot blows out. Yeah, if you like, blow, if you blow a foot, like that sometimes slips. happens, right? Yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, it happens if you wait around. Like, you'd like to think that there's a degree of control to it where, like, you only blow your foot if you're inattentive in how you place it or if your shoes are old or if the friction's bad or if, you know, there are a lot, lot of freaking variables. And so then you're sort of like, well, you know, but it feels random because you're like, oh, I thought it was good. My foot blew. Yeah. You're like, oh, oops. Well, I must have placed it poorly or something. But, you know, it doesn't help if you're dead. But. No. And then, th- so, so you get done with this. And again, this is just like your word. You're like, you... T- Told your buddy like, hey, I I, I free sold half dome by the way yesterday or whatever, and then he posts it, 
somewhere on the interwebs and then people kind of catch what you're doing. Yeah, I kind of forget how all this stuff played out because I mean, so that was in 2008, which feels like a long time ago now. And mm-hmm. that was like pre-social. I didn't have a smartphone yet. There was no easy way to disseminate information around climbing like that. And so, you know, I did it. My friends knew about it at some point. You know, I like obviously told a few people. Like the I'd climbed the wall with a partner two days before with a rope to practice it to mm-hmm. you know see if it was doable. And so, um, so he knew that I was you know at least toying with the idea. I mean, he you know. He was kind of like, oh, why are we going up here to practice? Like, obviously, he kind of had a sense of it. And so I texted him when I was done just so he wouldn't be worried. And, um, you know, texted, like, the people I was climbing with the next day to be like, okay, let's go do, you know, whatever. Um, and I don't really know how it spread from there. But then but then the next year, we filmed the movie Alone on the Wall, mm-hmm. which is what you saw in film festivals and things that toured with Real Rock. And, and it went on the, the Banff Mountain Film Tour thing, so it kind of toured internationally. And so I feel like the real you know, the half dome free solo sort of became a big thing sort of a year and a half later. You're already over it. Yeah. By then I'd already done a bunch of other solos, a bunch of, I'd, you know, been on a couple expeditions. Yeah. It was like ancient history by then. But. Dang. And then you had to go back and reenact it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's fine. Cause that was just like two days of two days of work on half dome basically. Look, like I said, it would make me mad. I'm getting mad for you right now. And apparently, it doesn't make you mad at all. Like, I'm no, like, no. Well, can you imagine a better place to work? You know, no, I'm sort true. of like, oh, I'm going up with three of my good buddies to go camp at one of the most beautiful places in the world, and this is what I do for a job. You're like, this is awesome. <laughs> you know, just and and then the part and well, so this is the thing that I think people don't don't totally get. And there's a lot of these films, like Alone on the Wall, when you're like, that's such crazy free soloing. What you're seeing is the safest and most secure yeah. stuff on the whole route. Like, you're not seeing any of the stuff where I actually think I could fall. You're seeing the stuff that, you know, I feel totally comfortable doing on command in weird weather, you know, like just whatever. When the guy tells you that it's time to go, you're like, okay, I can go. So whatever you're seeing is like the chill stuff. Yeah. So just imagine the not chill stuff. In the book, you talk about the fact that that the move that I just read, you're like, you you didn't do that again. You didn't reenact that one. No, for no, the we camera. didn't run that pitch. You're like, no. hell no. Yeah, hell no. <laughs> hell no. Or if I was going to, I mean. I'm sure I could do that again if I had to, but if I went up there again, I would make some major marks with chalk all over, be like left foot, right foot, left foot, and like be positive of like, this is exactly how I do it every time. And that's a big part of the difference in my process between the, the half dome experience and, and then later uh, mm-hmm. freestyling El Cap. Cause like that passage you read in the intro with the boulder problem on El Cap, that was perfectly executed where I knew exactly what to do. So I was sort of able to go into autopilot and just do it. Whereas on half dome, you're up there all self-conscious the whole time being like, is this the right way? Am I, is this the right foot? Should I try a different foot? But that feels even worse. I should try an even different, you know, it's like you're just doing different stuff and it's like you're panicking. Yeah, well, even you're, when you're climbing half dome, I didn't read this part, but you like got a little lost and turned around on the route itself, which is a yeah. little crazy. Yeah, it's because I'd intended to go one way and then I got up there and I just wasn't feeling that great. And I was sort of like, oh, I, I knew that there existed an easier way that bypassed one of the, the cruxes in the middle of the wall. But I'd never actually gone the easier way, but I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. And then it turns out I, I totally <laughs> overshot the easy way and, and did a bunch of stuff that was unfortunate. But that that was a whole different experience because then you, you think you're just lost in the middle of this 2,000 foot wall. And you're like, holy shit. You know, like you're seeing no signs of human passage. They're like bushes in the cracks. And you're kind of like, you know, am I like totally lost up here? It's, yeah, but eventually I found my way back to the route. And eventually, if you you could sit, you, you mentioned in the book, like, well, I could sit here and wait till some more climbers and yell at them and like get some help if I had to. And and then it's the way you described getting helicopter rescued. You, it seemed like you would rather die. 
That's that's the way it, you didn't say that in a book, but it seemed like you the, would rather the die. deepest of shames. Yeah, would <laughs> be. No, I mean, that's the interesting thing with free soloing and Yosemite in particular, because Yosemite is quite popular. I mean, they're tourists, they're climbers, they're they're folks around, and so you could always yell for help. You could always just sit down on a little ledge, um, and that's the thing with free soloing is that if you slip and fall, you're going to die for sure. But if you just suddenly had a change of heart and you're like, you know what, I'm not into this, like I can't do it or something, you could find a little stance here or there. You know, like uh, the, the slab pitch that I'm describing on Half Dome, it starts off of this little leb- ledge feature, sort of half the size of this table, let's mm-hmm. say. So you could just go sit on that little ledge and just sit there carefully for like a day or two and wait for somebody to get you. And in the grand scheme of survival situations, like you'd, you'd be fine. You know, you'd shiver through the night and in a day or two, someone would collect you and it'd be better than dying. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be deeply embarrassing and, <laughs> and, and, and sort of a, you know, it'd be a hard thing to overcome confidence wise, but, but you'd be alive and that'd be fine. Yeah. And then when you've got this carabiner that you can kind of grab onto and no one's really watching and it's like, you're either going to die or make it but I'm gonna hold the line. Yeah, but then the whole rest of your life, you'd be like, yeah, I free soloed half dome mostly, sort of, except for that one key move where I skipped the hardest move on the route. Mm. You know, it'd be weird because you spend the whole rest of your life being like, oh, this thing that I did that I'm really proud of, almost, but I'm not that proud of, I'm actually kind of deeply ashamed of, please don't tell anyone. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's the alternative also being you spend the rest of your life, which is about five seconds yeah. tumbling. In. Yeah, <laughs> I know, it'd be terrible, but. I know it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a predicament though, because it's something that you're like, this could be, you know, one of the crowning achievements of your life so mm-hmm. far, or it could be this like deeply embarrassing thing that you don't want to talk to anybody about. <laughs> you're sort of like, oh, I got it over my head. And then, and then it all <laughs> went sideways. You know, like, I don't know. Uh, what about El Sendero Luminoso? You like that, Echo Charles? How yeah, was that? Uh, well, you know. Not bad? Yeah. This one again. Now this one looks like little tiny freaking holes. This isn't much as much crack activity, is it? No, no. But it's um, it's, it's a horrifying, whole, man. Well, an important distinction is that Sendero is uh, is limestone, so it's a different type of rock. So it's um, it's like these porous solution pockets. It's all these little holes, and so actually, it's way more featured than the Yosemite. Oh, everything okay. we've talked about. So actually, not everything. So several of the things we've talked about so far have been on granite. So it's basically like smooth blank faces with cracks on them, through them. Um, and then uh, Moonlight Butters is sandstone, but that's also just a pure crack. Sendero is just a whole different thing because limestone is like a different type of rock. It's porous. It has like different types of little nooks and crannies in it. And so, I don't know. I mean, Sendero, though, is actually harder than any of the other ones um, that we've been talking about technically. And it's just kind of bigger and harder. I mean, Sendero represented a whole different step. Like it was, And also it was many years later, and mm-hmm. I was a much better climber. Yeah, this is now like 2014. Yeah, yeah. I saw Sendero though as, as part of the lead up to free soloing El Cap. Like there were there were three routes basically. Like I, I wanted to solo El Cap uh, as soon as I soloed Half Dome, like in two thousand eight. El Cap was the obvious next thing. Where I was like, I should do that because it's the next big. But it just was too hard and too daunting and like too too far beyond. And so I kind of had three other hard walls that uh that I wanted to do leading up to El Cap. And Sendero was one of them, and then the other two uh, were never filmed or got photos or anything. They're just these two random routes that you haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. But they're also one of them I did with almost no prep because I ran out of freaking propane in my van, and the drive up into the mountains to get to the place was so heinous and windy that I was like, "There's no way I'm going to drive back to town to get more propane and then drive back up here." I was like, "I'm just going to 
not eat dinner and then climb it tomorrow and then leave for good because i was like i don't want to drive there where was that that's that's in the needles it's uh this place in the high sierra um out between fresno and bakersfield it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere it's like these really nice granite spires that are like tucked away in the mountains and it was really hard yeah it's really hard it's um it's like the same as any of the other ones yeah it's hard it's like a 10 or 12 pitch 12b but it's really really technical granite did they film um, Luminosa live or did you reenact no, it? No, so they, I think there were people there when I did it, but this was like pre-documentary filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I think the filmmakers were uncomfortable. Everybody was kind of like, well, let's just let it, you do your thing. And so I actually sold that with a little day bag on because I needed food and water and I needed my shoes so I could hike down off the summit of the mountain. Cinder uh, Luminosa climbs this sort of tower feature. And so normally you climb it and then you repel the tower with two ropes. But if you don't have a rope, then uh, <laughs> I scrambled back to the to the wall of the mountain behind it and then continued on to the summit of that mountain. So another like, I don't know, 500 feet or 1,000 feet or something of like kind of bullshit jungle climbing to get to the top of the mountain. And then you can hike down the other side of the mountain on like a normal tourist trail. But so my free solar experience was like a little unusual in that I have a little bag on. I've got food and water. I've got supplies, you know. Because climbing with a backpack, you know, it only... It's like what two or three pounds or something of extra weight which represents almost nothing in the grand scheme of you know as a percentage of mass and so but obviously it looks way worse in film and so they didn't want to shoot like a long shot of me up there with my little day bag like going <laughs> going to school you know so then later when we went back and filmed on it you're just up there in your t-shirt looking like a hero and you're like, oh, what a great what a great shot you're like, yeah it looks way better everybody's happy it's like makes a great film it's freaking psycho to look at yeah yeah that one especially the things like so filming on Sendero, I don't think I, did, I didn't do the crux again I didn't do a couple of things, but the sections that I did do are still 512. They're still like sort of elite rock climbing and they look I mean they look yeah like the it footage looks, still looks it insane. Looks, it looks yeah. heinous. Yeah, yeah, and there's like a massive wind like it's super windy yeah, Which yeah. also, you know, I'm just already uncomfortable and then there's a super strong wind blowing and I'm like yeah. This does not look cool to me. That's I mean nature. it looks awesome to me, but it looks horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah but that's, I mean, that's the nature of filming in mountains. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's windy. It's just like you're in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, and, and and so you said as soon as you climbed Half Dome, you, were, you knew that El Cap was going to be somewhere in the future. Yeah, El Cap was always kind of a life dream for sure. I mean, it's just, I mean, you've seen it. It's, have you seen it? What? El Cap. Yeah, yeah, Yosemite. yeah. You've been to Yosemite? No, I've never been there. But oh, I, no. I've seen it on Oh, no, you guys see it in yeah, person. Yeah, you see it. Oh, yeah, see it in, in real life. Different. Yeah, when you see it in real life, I mean, it's just so it's so mega. It's so it's awe inspiring. It's grand. It's it's vast. It's like it's everything. You're just like wow. And so you know, I, I was spending maybe three months a year in Yosemite in my van, and you know, it's like your whole life revolves around El Cap. Basically, it's like you drive past every day, you look at it, you're like, that's so epic. So yeah, I mean, it was always the the big goal. Is there? When- I mean, also like at some point. Um, a journalist had written in Outside Magazine like a, a speculative piece like the race to free soloing all cap. I mean, it was like an obvious challenge for mm-hmm. climbing. Who it, who was in the race? Well, me and, I mean, the guy that wrote the article was sort of speculating between me and Dean Potter. Who, mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember yeah. him, but he, yeah. he's now deceased. But he was also a very talented free soloist and he uh, was base jumping a lot and had kind of, you know, I, I sort of fondly called him the dark wizard because he had a lot of sort of dark arts like, you know, base <laughs> jumping. And, and he was just sort of a dark broody soul <laughs> yeah for sure but but um but he was certainly capable of of something like that you know he maybe 
he was never quite there, but he certainly, I mean, I know he thought about it. Mm-hmm. Like he was, he was interested for sure. So the race was you two. Yeah. Or, I mean, or who knows who else, right. because I mean, anybody that has free soloed a little and climbed Yosemite has at least thought about it, you know, as like a magical, like, wouldn't that be crazy? You know, it's, but it's an yeah. obvious possibility. When you are thinking about doing this, um, what's like the driving thing that's making you want to do this? That would be so cool. I mean, you know, it's it's just the obvious challenge. I mean, it's hard to describe how important Yosemite is to climbing history and climbing culture and, you know, climbing mythology. And then El Cap is sort of central to that. And there's been so much climbing history written on the walls of El Cap. Like, I mean, just the first ascent of El Cap was groundbreaking at the time as the, the most difficult, biggest big wall in the world. And then, you know, I guess what? Which, 20, was, which was a to- like a... It's a different, it's a totally different thing what they did back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, totally different thing. It took them 18 months of effort and, you know, 40 days on the wall and drilling all these bolts. It's like a whole process. It's almost, but, like, it was almost like a construction project, you know, in a yeah, way. You're just like yeah. literally drilling holes into the wall. Yeah. And then, but, but crazy because at that point, ropes didn't hold falls. So, I mean, that's a big, uh, oh. that's a big thing. I mean, they had ropes and the ropes would help, but if you took a big fall, there's like a legitimate chance the rope would break. Nowadays, that's not a thing. Nowadays, a climbing rope. Uh, you know, unless something crazy happens, like you could fall the whole length of the rope and it's totally fine. And, and the rope absorbs enough force that you won't even be hurt. You'll just kind of be like, oh, boingy, you know, like a little bouncy. It's like totally chill. But back then, sort of like, oh, you don't even have a real harness. The rope's not going to catch a fall. It's all pretty, uh, it's pretty adventurous up there. But, Damn. but yeah, so, you know, there's been so much climbing history written on El Cap from the first ascent to the the first in a day ascent to the first free ascent, you know, to like all these big milestones in in climbing have occurred on El Cap. And so it makes sense that as a, you know, mid 20s like hungry young man like looking to do something cool, you're like, "Oh, that's that's the place to do it." Yeah. So you started thinking about that in 2008 and now 2009, 2010, 2012, 2014, you know, you're doing these other things and you're just progressively getting better. Can you feel yourself getting better? Are you getting stronger? Are you just no, getting more I, technical? No, it's so slow. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know. I assume that you've been the same with all the sports and things that you do. It's like you improve so slowly that you never really realize how much better you've gotten. Uh-huh. You're just kind of like, I mean, in climbing, you just basically feel like you suck every day because climbing is mostly failing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always trying things that are just past your limit and you're always failing. And so every day you mostly fail. And then every once in a while you have experiences of great success where you're like, oh, I did a thing that was hard for me. Like I'm proud of myself. But but mostly you just, it's just the grind, you know? You just go climb and you get worked and you feel tired and, you know. Yeah, it's weird. In, in jiu-jitsu in particular, you're like, you're getting so much better but you don't know it. Like my, me right now would kill me six months ago hmm. or maybe a year ago because when you get better, you don't improve quite as much yeah, as you used yeah, to yeah, of course. in the beginning. But but you definitely are improving over time. And if you ever have someone that like stopped training and you keep training, like they're just in a totally different world. You can annihilate them. Totally. So as you're climbing and as you're improving, but you can't really perceive that you're improving, at what point do you start to contemplate like for real, oh, this is on the map? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, I think that I could break it down as from, so 2008, I sold a half dome and I'm like, I'm gonna solo a cap next. And so starting in 2009, it was kind of like, this is the year. Then I got there and I was like, this is not the year. <laughs> it's like totally insane. It looks, you know, I was like, makes you want to poop when you think about it. You're sort of like, oh, geez. Like, there's no chance I'm selling that this year. And then I kept kind of hoping that it would just 
feel easy at some point that you know i kept hoping that i would improve enough that i would look up at the wall and think that looks easy like i can just do that and you know so the years roll by and i am doing harder things and i'm getting better and i'm going on expedition you know i'm doing all these other things that i'm proud of and climbing but every year you'd look up at El Cap and still just think that looks totally impossible and so starting in basically in 2015 i realized that it was never going to look easy you know i was like no matter how good i get it, well, I realized two things. One, I realized that I was never going to get good enough, that it was just going to look easy. Because I kept kind of thinking that I might just hit certain grades in climbing, like reach certain difficulty levels, where like if I could climb that grade, then it would look easy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's just, one, I'm never going to hit these grades. Two, even if I did, it's not going to look easy. It's still all cap. It's still, it'd still be insane. And so I realized that if I wanted to do it, I would have to just put the work specifically into the climb itself mm-hmm. and like basically do all the prep work as if I was going to, even though I wasn't sure if I could or not, you know, sort of act as if I was mm-hmm. going to with the uncertainty there of knowing that like, maybe I can't, but I'll at least do all the prep work and find out. And that started in 2015. Yeah. And sort of by happy coincidence, um, Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli, the, the co-directors of Free Solo approached me that same year uh, about doing a feature film project. Uh, they didn't know anything about OCAP and you know, I kept my cards very close to the chest on that stuff because it's just all sort of I don't know, it's it's weird. Like mm-hmm. you don't really talk to your friends about that stuff. But um wait, wait, so wait. <laughs> wait, why don't you talk to your friends about this stuff? Because everybody tells you you shouldn't do it. Oh, and okay, and it makes everybody it. deeply uncomfortable and nobody really wants to know about it ahead of time. Like you don't want to put that burden on somebody. Like, got oh, it. I'm gonna go do this thing. I might die tomorrow. Yeah. You know, it's like it's better and if them they not feel to know. bad because they didn't oh I should have said something. I should have yeah, told exactly. them this or Like that. I thought he looked sketchy, I should have said something. And yeah. you're like, you know, it's not on you, you know. God, I feel but, that way about like fights. Like I've had friends that have done mixed martial arts fights or where I've I've been like, Man, I shouldn't have let them go. I should have said something. So yeah, if they died, oof. Yeah. Be like, Oh jeez. Yeah, it's just it's just better not Got to. It. But then but then the other thing about it is that if you tell your buddy like I'm gonna do this thing tomorrow and then you hike up there and you're like, you know, actually it's kinda cold and I just don't feel it today. Mm-hmm. You know, like for whatever reason I don't want to do it. But then you're like, Oh, but I don't wanna have to go back and then tell my buddy that I bailed because then he's gonna think I'm light duty, even though your buddy doesn't <laughs> want you to anyway. But you know what I mean? It starts adding all this psychology to it that you just yeah. don't need. It's better just to feel like it's totally on you. You go up, if you're not feeling it, you walk back. Mm-hmm. There's like no second guessing. The psychology of that, yeah, that that is, that's kind of crazy. You know what's interesting? I, I've talked about the psychology of um, in special operations, right? So, like my last deployment to Iraq, the special operations guys, which is me, my SEALs, we kind of got to choose what missions we were going to do. Like, oh, there's a mission. Oh, there's a bad guy, or there's an area we want to go to. My, it's my decision. I'm literally saying, okay, we will go do this. <laughs> And the burden that you have from that is like, oh, someone gets hurt or someone gets killed. That was 100% yeah, it was your me. decision. The conventional forces, oftentimes, they're getting told like, hey, you're going to go do this. And so when that leader gets told, hey, you're going to go do this, they go and do it. If someone gets hurt or killed, it's, they were just kind of executing. And there's di- there's like a different, different burden and, and yeah. a different psychological burden that you have when you're, depending on what situation you're in. And yeah, I could see that the thing like this here, you're, you're choosing to do it. You don't want to have the burden of any other mindset or any other pressure of like, well, you know, Fred's really going to think I'm, a, I'm weak if I don't do this today or whatever. Or they got all, even they all got set up for me to do this and then I didn't do it. Well, that's the hard thing with filming is because mm-hmm. if there's a whole crew, you know, like with filming Free Solo, 
there'd be, you know, six or eight people involved in like getting up on the wall, getting to the summit, repelling into position. And if you get up and you're like, you know, I just didn't sleep that well and I don't really feel it today. But you know that eight of your buddies set their alarm for 3.30 so they could hike to the summit of a mountain mm-hmm. and repel in. You're kind of like, man, I'm doing a big disservice <laughs> to the team if I don't show up and perform. <laughs> so then you're sort of like, but then but then you don't want to force it either yeah. because if it's not your day, it's not your day and you and you can't force that. Yeah, it's weird in free solo. You can see that they're all they're not all wanting to do. Yeah. They're not wanting to apply any of that pressure to you yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, because they're yeah, all. I mean, they're in a super tough spot because, like, they don't want to pressure me. There's this whole weird mirror mirroring effect where, with filming, where if you're doing something difficult and there's a film guy near you filming it, like, you know that they're uncomfortable because, you know, I mean, they're a climber as well. They're watching something that they know is hard and they're like, holy shit, this is kind of intense. And so you want to make it look as effortless po- as possible. Like, you want to look in control mm. because you don't want to freak out your buddy. But then you don't want to climb differently because you're like trying to look smooth and in control. And so it's this whole back and forth mirror where you're like, I want to look good so I don't scare them because I know they're scared. But then, you know, it's, it's, it's all bad, basically. But that's why um, in the in the, the passage that you read um, at the beginning when I do the boulder problem, yeah. when I mentioned that there are cameras on the wall, those were both remote operated remote cameras camera. that they had sort of rigged up as a, as a special system so that I wouldn't have to deal with having an operator on the wall there. Yeah. Yeah, because you're trying to mirror for them that you're calm, and they're trying to do the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Because they don't want to look like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, because if I look over and I see my buddy crying, I'd be like, oh shit. (laughs) If you saw today's not my day. Like Mikey, (laughs) who's down in the valley, who's filming, he's like turning away, and he's just like, can't look at the camera. That that would probably make you super uncomfortable yeah. if you could have seen that yeah, at exactly. the time. Super sketched. No, out. I've done I've done a lot with Mikey because Mikey has been uh, uh, Jimmy Chin's photo assistant mm-hmm. for a bunch of different things. He's got a poker face for when it's up close. Actually, well, no. So I've done a couple of shoots with Mikey where he was holding the lights for Jimmy, and uh, and he literally just was looking away the entire time. He would hold the light in the correct position, all the settings are correct, but he just like wouldn't watch the shoot at all. He's like, I don't need to see this. <laughs> be like, it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> he just, but he's he's a he's an elite climber himself, mm-hmm. and uh, and I've also been on expeditions with him and stuff. Like notably, we were together on this trip in Greenland uh, a year and a half ago, which was also like a TV expedition mm-hmm. thing, and um, and so he's he's a hardcore climber that like knows how all this stuff works. But basically, when he's working, you know, when he's filming, he's just like, I don't need to see it. Like unless I need to watch, I'm not going to. Dang. Yeah. That's how like, he deals with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember doing this this uh, this crack uh, f- for um, Jimmy Chin shot this this feature for for National Geographic, the magazine mm-hmm. that uh, that I was on the cover of. Actually, there was a photo from uh, from Half Dome. Mm-hmm. But so Mikey was like holding the lights for all these different photos, and he just like didn't he just like covered his eyes for the whole shoot. <laughs> it's like totally crazy. Yeah, I think I think when you were on Joe Rogan, you were talking about. You know, he's like, how do you do this? How do you do this? And and you're like, it for me, it feels like I'm walking down the sidewalk. That's what you said, like something along those lines. Some, like, some things. It's something not always quite that solid, but but aspire to anyway. Yeah. And I was like, I try to put that in perspective because you know we all have little skill sets that we have, what we're good at, and it seems real easy to do that thing. And yet at the same time, even the things that you're good at, sometimes you mess up. So Mikey's probably thinking. Could be, could it be the time? But though you rarely mess up the thing you're good at on the day that you're not supposed to mess up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think there is a, a distinction. Like when you're on, you're really on. I don't know. Yeah, and you've you've likely subconsciously or consciously gotten to a point in your life where you know how to be on 
and this I need to be on right now because again with fighters there's some fighters that they they look great in practice and they do great in practice and game time they they, they don't bring it they mess up they make mistakes mm. they get psyched out and there's some people that they're the opposite like they do okay in training and they're like man I don't know if he's how he's yeah, gonna do they and bring their a they game just bring the their match. a game and cr- oh. and crush and yeah you you probably have done enough things where you're like oh yeah I need to do this right and also being able to recognize I'm not I can't do this right now now's not the day now's not the time mm-hmm. I need to stop I think that's one of the interesting things that differentiates climbing from a lot of other sports is that you know with fighting you have to show up on the day of the fight mm-hmm. and you have to perform at your best but with climbing you show up and you're just like nah, today's not my day and mm-hmm. you come back the next week or you come back the next day or you know you basically just you, you get to choose your timing and I, th- I always think about that with ball sports. Yeah. You know, when you're like, it's it's Sunday, I have to play. You're kind of like, what if I don't want to play on Sunday? Yeah. What if I want to play on Tuesday? You know, it's like, <laughs> what if my knee's still kind of achy and I want to chill for another day? Yeah. You know, it's r- like with climbing, you can always choose your best day and then you can really make your days count. Yeah, the worst is the Olympics. Oh, dude. It's been yeah, four, four years, years, eight years or whatever <laughs> of preparation. And yeah. now you feel like, I got a stomach ache on game day. You're a gymnast or whatever. Totally. And you got to go out there and do the best. No, four of years your life. Of, uh, of periodized training where you've been like <laughs> doing some crazy cycle up and down for four years. And you're like, this is my peak. And you're like, yeah, but actually, I, I think I ate something weird. You know, my stomach kind of hurts. Yeah. It's like, that's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, climbing is, is so chill by that. You know, but by that comparison, I wonder, but the stakes obviously are like you have to choose your day because you could die. Yeah, I wonder if you've become like hypersensitive to how you feel just through. Whereas, like a a wrestler or a gymnast has just been like, no, it doesn't matter how I feel. I just need to go perform. Whereas you're like, eh, you know what? Today's you. You probably could rate each of your days and subconsciously like, yep, today I'm feeling good. And it's when when you watch the movies and when you write about it in the book, you're like, you can. You, you know when you're feeling good. Yeah, actually, I wonder about that because, uh, you know, I've never done any other sport well enough to really know. But I've noticed, like, with climbing training, like, actually, so during the free solo movie tour, um, like, you know, the film came out. I was doing this crazy, you know, six-month, like, press tour, like, nonstop events. And at the time, I had a pretty structured training plan. Um, and I was, I was, like, training in the gym. And, and it was, like, the only thing that kept me sane through the whole six months of, like, in just crazy Hollywood stuff. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that when, you know, with nonstop travel, like different, different climbing gym in a different city every day sort of thing. And my climbing performance was pretty erratic depending on sleep and, and whatever. But when I would do the extra things like weighted pull-ups and like weight sort of things, my numbers are pretty consistently good that, you know, no matter how tired you are, you can still just like lift a heavy ass weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not like absolute peak performance, but in general, you can kind of hit your gym numbers. But my climbing performance was all over the place because, uh, and as I found out from the the coach that I was working with, I think it has more to do with the, let's see, can I, can I repeat it correctly? Basically just that there's a, there's a coordination element to it. Like, uh, like, you know, firing your muscles at the right time. Like, cause climbing is such a complicated movement. It's not just like, mm-hmm. flex your muscles. It's like so many different muscles working in concert and like, Basically, it's really complicated. And the more tired you are, like that stuff just doesn't doesn't fire the same way. Mm-hmm. And so, as a climber, all that to say that I think as a climber, you are very attuned to like how your body feels. And as a climber, when you get injuries, they're all in your fingers, and, like little tiny, where you're like, oh, I feel a tiny, tiny little tweak in my finger. 
and it's like you look at the NFL or something, and people have like a broken femur, and they're like getting taped yeah. up and going back in. Yeah, they're taking like six Vicodins and getting a bunch of tape, and they're like finishing the game. And you're like, holy shit, you know? Because as a climber, you're like, I think my one knuckle is like a little swollen. I just can't quite hold that hold quite right. You're like, I gotta take a rest week. You know, it's like, and it makes you feel super light duty compared to other sports yeah. because like you know people are training through like the craziest things. But it just it just doesn't work that way. You just can't. Especially not when your freaking life's at stake. And, yeah. And you're not, if you're not free soloing, you're probably not as, I mean, I assume not as concerned. Like if you're just going to do a normal rock climb and you're not feeling that great, you're like, oh, okay, cool. I get my knuckles a little sore, but I'll power through it. It's no big deal. Yeah. Though actually even that you often don't power through because you're, your fingers are so delicate, basically. Like, basically, the tools of the trade are so delicate. Mm-hmm. It'd be like a pianist, you know? Like, if they start to feel, like, some pain in their fingers, they're like, ooh, I should probably ease off that because I just won't be able to do my thing if, mm-hmm. like, you know, basically any kind of pain in tendons and ligaments in your arms or fingers, you're pretty pretty mindful of because if they get out of control, like, you're kind of hosed for a while. <laughs> like, if, if you injure a finger, you're, like, out for a while. I'm going to show you later some picture of some jujitsu people's hands and fingers. Oh, all broken and They're like twisted mangled and crazy. Because especially people that compete with the uniform on with the gi on the jujitsu mm-hmm. gi, everything is grabbing and squeezing and like it's guys' hands look so gnarly. The Meow brothers, mm-hmm. you ever seen their, their hands? Yes, sir. Like it's famous pictures of just hands that oh my God. every knuckle is like swollen. It's, 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 it's crazy. But they, their life doesn't depend on being able to hang on. They'll make adjustments. Though they do get all messed up, don't they? It's like life doesn't depend on, but they're getting punched in the face or something, aren't they? Yeah. In well, in in when you get into mixed martial arts, yeah. Um, in jujitsu, there's no punching. There's just like choking and breaking arms. And stuff oh yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. Just a broken arm. It's, it's a show. It's a little more mellow. So this but is all that, that. Actually, though, so that's another thing that I think differentiates climbing from a lot of these other sports is that with climbing, it's like yes, the stakes are very high that you could die. I mean, with free soloing, you could die. But, you know, I've gone, I've been a climber for 28 years and I've had like almost no injuries. And I feel like a lot of these other sports, you know, it's like you're getting kind of messed up all the time. I think about that with outdoor sports like mountain biking, where it's like if you're a serious mountain biker, like you're breaking a collarbone like every couple of years. Dude. You know, it's like, like you're getting injured all the time. Yeah. And, and if you're a professional mountain biker, like you're having a major surgery like every four years for mountain sure. Biking. <laughs> mountain like, biking is, when I watch mountain biking, I'm, I'm just uncomfortable yeah it's crazy but so but so with climbing it's like you're not going to have any of those injuries your whole career but you're always facing that risk of death Mm -hmm. and to me i kind of prefer it that way (laughs) where it's like yeah the consequences are there you have to stay attentive like you could die but at least you're not freaking getting shoulder surgery every couple years and like you know like man i I don't know i think it's a nice way to live dude those mountain bikers go after it too like the downhill mountain bikers that are just bombing and when they and when you wipe out with a bike, I mean that just adds this whole freaking apparatus yeah. into your wipeout that mm. just sucks. I mean, if you fell and you were rock climbing and you fell, even if you were roped up, but you had you were holding a bicycle with you, like, <laughs> it just no, yeah, the so bicycle much tied to you and yeah, it's just swinging it just past swing, you. It's just yeah. freaking awful. It's like when you fall <laughs> ice climbing and you have like pointy things <laughs> on every. You know, you have crampons on, you have ice tools, you have like all these pointy things swinging around, and you're like, oh my god, yeah. trying to stay clear of everything. Yeah, the ice climbing, you know, they sell ski poles and they have like little ice climbing. Yeah, whippets. Yeah, the little point on the yeah, ski pole. Yeah, and you're like, well, what if I fall? <laughs> yeah. Because when you fall skiing, you're just, it's just a disaster, right? It just, everything's everywhere. Well, those are for a very specific application. Yeah. 
yeah. like extreme steep skiing where you have to self-arrest and stuff. Yeah. But no, well, for the average person on the slope, they should not have a freaking <laughs> ice tool on the end of their ski pole. <laughs> like, like that's, Noted. Yeah. 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 No, if you're just out at the resort, you should not have a spike on the end of your ski pole. It's like some poor snowboarder hits you at full speed and just dies when the thing goes through their helmet. Uh, well, everything that we're talking about, though, it, it actually it plays out in free solo because you're all was it 2017 you're all in the in the run up going through all the drills doing all the prep and you go you go you go and you start the climb and you get what 500 feet up and you you're not feeling it and you walk away yeah, actually, so it's funny you read that excerpt from from Half Dome because I actually did exactly what we were describing on Half Dome. I got, yeah, 500 feet up basically to the free blast labs to this like blank section of rock. And and there are bolts in the rock so that people climbing with ropes can clip the rope in. And so I got up there and there are no handholds and I was like, I'm not feeling it and started just grabbing the bolts. And so you're still climbing without a rope. You know, you're still 500 climbing. feet up. Yeah, it's still 500 feet up. It's like if you fall, you're still going to die. But by holding the bolts, it makes the difficulty much, much easier because you suddenly have things to hold that keep you balanced. And it's like way more chill. And so, you know, I cheated by using the bolts, got across the slab and then cheated a bit further and then uh, and then climbed another 400 feet of easy terrain to get up to this big ledge system where there are fixed lines that go back down to the ground from there. And that's like a normal aspect. Like that's part of El Cap that mm-hmm. everybody uses that all climbers use. And so, yeah, it's funny. It's not like I climbed 500 feet and I was like, cool, I want to go down. You know, I still had to go up another, another 500 feet to get to the weight that you can get down. Um, but I just like cheated the way I was thinking about cheating on half dome. It's just like a way to escape the wall. Free blast, the way it looks, it's basically a few hundred feet of what we were talking about earlier where you just don't get the like full security. Lab. Yeah. Yeah. It's just totally blank. I mean, so the crux moves of the free blast lab, like the hardest section um, there are actually no handholds at all, and it's just this three-foot move sequence where you just you're just standing on your big toes, and if your foot slips, you're gonna die. But you know it's low angle, so it's like it's less than vertical, and it's like just tiptoeing across a wall, which is balanced on your big toes. It's like, but so that, and that's why I bailed because I'd sprained my ankle earlier that season um, in a in a climbing fall, and my foot had been kind of swollen, and I was kind of swollen in the shoe and. And also that time of year, it was early November, it's just really cold out um, and, and dark. And you're required to climb that early because you're trying to get to some of the upper stuff before it goes into the sun. Um, whereas in the springtime, because the sun is higher in the sky, it shades its, the wall shades itself longer, and so you have better conditions for, for a longer amount of time. But in the fall, because the sun is so low, like as soon as the sun rises, you're just baking. So it means you have to start way before sunrise. So anyway, it's like basically conditions felt a little bit stacked against me and I couldn't feel my feet and it was kind of chilly. And then, and then suddenly you have to trust your life to this big toe and you're like, I can't feel my big toe and it's freaking dark and it's scary. You're like, no, F this, like, this is not, this is not my thing. But at the time though, it was very disappointing. I felt like a total failure. You know, you're just like, oh, the whole team is up here and I let them down. I really want to do this thing. Though it's funny because now in retrospect, I'm glad I bailed because then I went home and I did a bunch of PT on my ankle, trained all season, came back the next uh, spring, spent two more months working specifically on the route, and then when I finally did it, felt like a total boss, and it mm-hmm. was great. You know, so, like, you know, it's the classic thing where where what feels like a failure at the moment, you know, in, in hindsight, you're like, oh, it only took me six more months of effort, and it wound up being a much better experience in the long run. So I'm kind of like, you know, what's, what's six months of effort when compared to, like, a... Yeah. 
compared to like the thing you're going to be most proud of your whole life probably. And the the confidence level after you work an extra six months is just going to totally it's so much, much higher. More. And actually, and, it's, and it was good for me and the film crew to have a, a bit of a dry run where because oh, right. actually that was the first time. And this sounds stupid, but just hiking up to the base cap with no rope is a bit of a big mental step. <laughs> and so just having done it once before, you're like, okay, well, at least I remember what it's like to walk up to the wall and just tie, put on my shoes, tie my shoes, and start climbing. Because it's really different than the normal routine, which is laying out the rope, getting all your gear ready, like talk, talking to your partner. You know, it's like normally there's a whole process before you start climbing El Cap. And when you go there to free solo, you're like, oh, this this feels different. You know, <laughs> it's like feels a little heavier. <laughs> The you use the term autopilot when when you're talking about some of those really hard moves, and even when you're talking about just like you'll get into a mode where you're just autopilot. You just know what you're doing and you do it. Is that not is that what you're striving for during training? Uh, not so much during training. That's what I aspire to during performance for sure. I mean, though, actually, now that you mentioned, I'm like maybe it would be better if I was a little more like that in training, but um. But it's for me. It's really hard to access that one hundred percent effort. Like you know, that's that's like flow state. That's like out of body experiences, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that's true across all kinds of sort of elite sports performance. But I think it's pretty hard to tap into that one hundred percent. Like I'm giving it everything I have, and I mean, it's probably possible for me to do that while training on the board or something. Right. You know, like I have a little gym in my garage and I train. But man, it's hard to care that much. Like when you're in the garage you know, your friends are there, you're listening to music, you're, you know, it's all pretty chill. And like, you try your hardest, but on sort of a superficial level, like, oh, I'm trying hard. You're not like trying the hardest you've ever tried in your life. It's it's funny when people are going to compete in jujitsu and they've never competed before. They're like, oh, what should I get ready for? I'm like, get ready for someone to be going harder than anyone has ever gone at you before. And for you to be using muscles in a way that you've never used them before. So what you're saying is actually 100% right. You get into competition and people are going completely insane, psycho. And where, <laughs> you know, if you and I are training and like you start to get a position on me, like, oh cool, I'll, I'll abandon that and go to something else, no. If we're in a match, like I am never going to abandon anything until you break me. And, yeah, totally. and it's such going a different, death. yeah, it's a death yeah. match. Yeah. And, and so it is very hard to push someone that hard in training in fact from and, and you probably shouldn't because you get injured right yeah you know for sure it's like the stakes are too high that way for sure because like that's the thing is you don't really want to train with that kind of intensity because you know i i know that i mean you'll burn out you'll get injured mm-hmm. it's just it's just a lot like you can't like not every game can be the super bowl you know or whatever whatever sports metaphor you want but are, are you going autopilot like when it's like, okay, this is kind of an easy area and I'm just going to kind of autopilot through so I don't have to think about it too much. And then are there areas where you're like, I need to pay attention to what I'm doing right now. No. Okay. Lot. So actually that's a, that's an interesting question. In some ways it's almost like two different autopilots because mm-hmm. yeah, you're right that on the easy terrain there is, you know, I go into autopilot, but that's more like a mindless climbing because on easy terrain and, and El Cap, the free solo of El Cap kind of breaks down as like a third easy, a third like medium and a third like hard cutting edge sort of. And so the easy terrain, you know, you can like think about your buddies, you can think about what you're having for lunch. You like look at the weather, you look at the birds. It's like, it's, it's lovely. And you can just kind of trust your body to just climb because it's quite easy. And then the moderate train, you can do a lot of that mindlessly as well. But typically on the moderate pitches, there'll be at least some sections where you have to like pay attention. But then on the hardest stuff, I sort of aspire to a different kind of autopilot where it's not like mindless climbing. It's more like 
perfect thoughtless climate. You know what I mean? Yep. I don't know. It's, it's a hard distinction to make, but, but that's kind of the good autopilot yep. where you're performing perfectly, but you're just not distracted by anything else. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of thinking about when you're walking down the stairs or up the stairs, I think, I think is it you that used that example, Echo Charles, like if you, you can walk up down the stairs like a hundred times, but if you think about while you're walking up the stairs, you're more apt to like trip up yourself yeah, fall down. Yeah. <laughs> or it happens to people when they're speaking where they're trying to speak in a certain way. So they're thinking about what they're saying and it jams them up and they're mm-hmm. stuttering and making mistakes and all that. Whereas you know what you're going to say. You've done this a bunch of times. You need to not think about it and just do it. I mean, this again, any sports like that. If you're on the fr- on the free throw line in basketball with the state championship on the line. You don't want to think about the mechanics of your free throw. Yes, like that's not the time to be like, okay, yeah, straight back and bent <laughs> arms. And here, you know, it's like you just want to do the thing that you're there to do. Exactly. And that's the autopilot. That Yeah, that's the good autopilot. We're talking just about. do what you know how to do. You do whatever you've done in practice a million times and you don't think about it. You yeah. just do it. Monkey mind. Yeah, actually, I think about it a lot for, um, I thought that a, a good analogy for, for the climbing, for like the, the boulder problem, let's say, on, on no cap, um, I compare it to gymnastics because I think that a gymnastics routine, it's like you practice the routine over and over and over. But then once you're doing the routine, I mean, I, I, I don't know gymnastics mm. at all, but I imagine that elite gymnasts aren't thinking about the routine at all when they're doing it because yeah. it's such complicated movement. It's so fast that they're just executing. And then afterward, they can sort of replay it and think like, oh, I should have done something differently or not. But while they do it, I, I presume that they're just doing it. You know, yeah. they're not they're not self-conscious about it at all. They're just performing. And I would venture to guess that if they start thinking about yeah, they're gonna the fall. routine, <laughs> yeah. it's going to freaking it, land on the face. It's, it's going to be yeah. a problem. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like halfway through your back handspring or whatever, you can't be like, am I tucked right? It's like, no, you just, you just do it. The uh, I had a, a thing. So in the military, there's something called no-go criteria. No-go criteria means we're not going. So, oh, we were expected that we would have aircraft to support our movement to the target. We don't have the aircraft. That's no-go criteria. We're not going. Totally. We don't have whatever resupply that we were expecting, so therefore we're not going. Or it's like 50-mile-an-hour winds, and we just can't jump in or do whatever. Yeah. So we have no-go criteria. So I used to joke around, kind of joking but also kind of serious, that for me, I had go, go criteria, which is we're going, right? This was like my attitude, like we're going. And that was sort of just to get over, oh, there's been a little hiccup. Hey, listen, guys, we're going. But then there was also this thing of, hey, we didn't get the aircraft. We, we got some other intel now. Oh, we, the, the supply, resupply that we expected isn't, like things would start to add up. And I felt as if sort of like the universe was telling me, yeah, that it's just not your day. This is not the day. Yeah. And I had no problem being like, oh, yeah, there's three things that are going wrong. Yeah, we're, we're not doing this. Yeah. And it, I think that it's important to know that sometimes you got to push and sometimes you got to pay attention to what the universe is trying to tell you totally. about what's happening. No, I, I totally agree. Otherwise, I mean, yeah, you, issues. <laughs> you want to, you never want to be lied to. You don't want to like give up to, you don't want to give up prematurely. That said, there's certain times where you just shouldn't be doing the thing. Yep. You know, like, yeah, it starts to rain. You're like, it's not, it's not my day. Yeah. I'm like, that's fine. That's, that's nature. Both in reading the book and then watching, I've watched a bunch of uh, movies with you in it, obviously, over the last couple of weeks. But when you're going, it's real obvious. Like, just the way you carry yourself when you're going, it's like, oh, yeah, he, 
you could see when you're getting out of bed, you're like, oh yeah, he's going. And you can, it's pretty clear that you're amped and hyped and there's probably not much that would turn you away from making this happen. Yeah, I mean, it takes, I mean, yeah, for me personally, it's like hard to totally turn on. And then once you're like on and doing it, it's sort of hard to turn back <laughs> off too. Like once you're psyched, you're like, okay, it's, it's go time, I'm doing it. And then, I mean, basically exactly what you're describing, like, you know, your go-go, you're kind of like, then it takes a lot to switch back to no-go, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, yeah, free soloing is just an interesting, and I think it's important for anyone listening to this who doesn't climb, there's an important distinction here between free soloing and climbing in general, because, you know, everything we're talking about with like elite performance and like all this go, I mean, this is for free soloing the most cutting edge things that I've done in my life, but in general for climbing, I just go climb every day you know, or five days a week. You know, it's like if it's raining, if it's windy, you're like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, if you have a rope, you have protection, it's worth climbing in adverse conditions. It's worth sort of pushing into discomfort just because you know it's good for you in the long term and or whatever. It's just a beautiful day to go out and do some climbing. You know, it's not like all climbing is extreme, but we're just talking about the most cutting edge free soloing. Yeah. There's definitely, if you're just listening to this and it sounds interesting, but you don't want to die, that's... Go to, go to the gym. <laughs> go to a climbing gym. I mean, I started in a climbing gym. Everybody goes to a climbing gym. Normally, climbing is super chill, super safe, yeah. really fun and social. You hang out with your friends on a sofa. You all boulder a little bit. It's yeah. like, it's, it's really quite enjoyable. I think if this is your first introduction to climbing, you're getting a very, like, sort of the wrong look at, like, the most intense, yes, I, most I, I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. not... Like, climbing for me, I think of, yeah, I think of going to the, going to the gym, but also even at Yosemite cool we would go up with my kids who would be you know six nine and whatever <laughs> totally. and they'd be totally. scrambling up the rocks and be roped in and be like it's really fun and there's little problems to figure out yeah. and they get to learn the ropes and everything so yeah there's a whole it's it's, it's fun it's safe there are normally a lot of snacks involved a lot of chill time <laughs> it's like it's a pretty <laughs> recreational sport really <laughs> you know I mean when I started climbing when I was 10 uh, my dad would take my sister and me to the climbing gym and uh and he wasn't a climber, but they just read about it opening in the newspaper and they're like, oh, this would be cool because I loved climbing on stuff. So I thought I'd, you know, like the gym. And, and yeah, we would go for several hours. There would be snacks. You know, we would take our time. We would top rips and things. Everyone would have a good time. And then we'd go home. It's like total suburban fun. It's like going to do laser tag or something, you know? So I think that when we're talking about like extreme free zoning, you know, it sort of belies the, the fun of climbing. And, and, and that said, I mean, even though I've, you know, I guess made a career out of doing this extreme free soloing, whatever, I'm still going climbing normally, what, like 300 days a year. Mm -hmm. And then I have one or two, you know, extreme high performance days, which I think is probably similar to most other sports where you spend most of your year training and practicing and doing whatever else. And then you have the occasional moments of, of hopeful excellence you know, where you like try your best to do the thing that you're trying to do. We definitely hope for excellence yeah. when you're out yeah, there. Yeah, but you just never quite. Well, but I mean, I'm sure with fights and stuff where it's like you train the whole year and then you have your one fight where you're like, this is my moment and yeah. you like hope that you're going to do your best. But, you know, yeah. but you find out it's like the one time of year that you test yourself against your training. The getting to the top of El Cap. Now you're the I mean, like you said, this is the the most iconic wall. And now you just knocked <laughs> shit out of the park. Uh, did you, how long did it take for that to sink in? A little bit. I don't know. I mean, well, you know, the crew, ever my friends were all psyched. I was psyched. I mean, we were, we were really psyched immediately though. So this is an example of being a professional. So I summoned at all cap. I was obviously psyched. We did some interviews and things. I, I actually trained that afternoon cause, uh, cause I was on this like routine. I didn't want to break the routine. 
it's funny because I summoned it and I felt so good. I was like, I could do it again. I'm so amped. I feel like a <laughs> champion, you know? And then I went down and tried to do my normal afternoon training on the hangboard. And uh, I was objectively very tired and like didn't perform that well on the board. And it was sort of like, maybe I shouldn't try it again. I, I am a little tired. You know, it's the classic. You're just so psyched. That you're like, I could do anything. And then you actually start training and you're like, mm, I couldn't do anything right now. I'm pretty tired. But uh, How about know. a pizza? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, actually, um, by sheer happy coincidence, the next day or maybe the day after was, uh, was Sunday. Day in Yosemite, they do a crazy brunch spread at the Iwani, um, which is like the fancy hotel. And, and uh, none of us were staying there, but they do this insane brunch that you can show up for. And uh, I hadn't eaten dessert in like six months or something. And then we all went to the Iwani, had like, you know, Nutella French toast. And like, we all just did the all you can eat brunch and just gorged on like eggs and pancakes and, you know, whatever. It was like a, it was a perfect sort of decompression like party after because i mean the crew was also incredibly stressed all the filmers and I mean, we all had been working very hard at it yeah that must have been one of the biggest all-time collective size of relief yeah totally totally but no so what i was going to say though is that this is where being a professional comes in so i did the climb we all gorged at the buffet and then i think i spent f the next five days in a row up on el cap filming so, I mean, it was like, did the climb, it was like, this is a life achievement. And then we spent five more days up there, like shooting close-ups of things, shooting, like moving ropes around, like shooting, you know, cause if you watch it, like the little handholds. Yeah, exactly. Like, All the little handholds that get cut in, like the little footholds, the close-ups of things, even some of the soling, like we shot some of the still photos. Um, cause there was an article in National Geographic magazine. Mm -hmm. They shot like a VR, like a 360 thing, you know, just like things that accompanied the film. Basically we did all the other stuff. Oh, and like, you know, in the film there's an aerial shot of me summiting, mm -hmm. um, but it's illegal to fly a helicopter in Yosemite. And they, they went all the way to the head of the park service in Washington, DC, trying to get permission to fly a drone, never got permission. It's, it's illegal to use drones in the park, which is great, which I think is a, an appropriate rule. But, but in this case, <laughs> but well, so in this case though, it would have been a lot better to fly a drone. But so as it turns out, the legal flight ceiling for Yosemite is, is either one or 2000 feet above the rim of the valley and El Cap is the rim of the valley. So basically using a Cineflex, like a giant long lens in a oh. helicopter, a thousand feet above El Cap, they were able to shoot it like normal and it's technically legal, but very much outside the, like we kind of knew that that was, well, we, I had nothing to do with this, mm -hmm. like, you know, but the, the, the crew kind of knew that that would burn some bridges at the park because that's very much outside the scope of, of what you're supposed to do in a national park mm -hmm. as it should be. But you know, they tried every other way and they were like, we need aerial footage. And so basically the very last thing we did, we did five more days of filming, we did whatever. And then I resold the last 600 feet, um, like two or three times in a row for the helicopter Damn. as like our last thing. And then we all like wrapped and then we all fled the park. <laughs> but, uh Again, yeah. this makes me super mad, dude. <laughs> this, this every time I hear you about you reenacting stuff, and it makes me mad. I get frustrated. I get mad. Like, dude, I cannot imagine being like, "Hey, Brooke, can you just get that one more time? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Hold on, take off your harness and get it again." Oh, talk about a burden. Yeah. Well, so I did some of the 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 posing. So, like, I don't want to give the wrong idea that like the film is faked or posed or anything because it's not. I mean, it like they have a long shot of me doing the entire climb, and it's mm -hmm. all. But then we went back and, and reshot some of the sections or reshot stills. So some of the things I did that when we were back posing, um, I, w I had like a little tiny, like a belt basically underneath my pants. And so for a couple of the shots, I had a rope going down my pant leg and then like in a big loop of slack going out of the frame. And so then you could do like a bunch uh, of stuff okay, and still it. be, you could still be attached. 
but with this sort of catastrophe system where if you <laughs> fell, it would rip your pants off and you'd get caught by the basically like a seatbelt around your waist. And so like you would survive, but it would be catastrophic. You know, like your pants would tear off, like everything would be bad. <laughs> and you'd be like, ow, you know, it'd be super painful, but you wouldn't die. At least. Yeah, yeah. But so there were a couple sections of the route that I did, you know, like six times in a row over and over with this giant like death loop, a slack out. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, like this isn't that much less scary than just soloing it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is kind of extreme. Were you mic'd up on yeah. the real one? Um, for from the boulder up or something. Basically, at a certain point, I put on a mic. Yeah, like when I passed some of the crew somewhere. So I actually was listening to music off my phone for a lot of it because that's like I like to do that when mm-hmm. I'm soloing. But you can't really do that when you're mic'd because they're not going to license a bunch of like <laughs> '90s metal and stuff. And so they're like, "Oh, he licensed a bunch of Tool, and like you know, Metallica." Because you're, like, cool. you're breathing and the Boulder problem, you can hear. <sighs> yeah, that uh, I forget if I was mic'd for the Boulder or not. Yeah, well, whatever, but, whatever they did, it definitely. But I was adds also mic'd for tons of other climbs, so mm-hmm. they have tons of audio of me just trying hard climbing it's like who knows yeah. like what it's from but um but yeah i was mic for part of it but part of it i wasn't mic for because i kind of didn't want the like i didn't want the weight yeah. you know like you have a like a transmitter on you the whole time like you have extra stuff you feel the cable on you and it's just like another thing that you're sort of like oh, i just don't want like don't feel like i got caught up in a cable you know and Jimmy Jimmel wasn't like quipping a diva, dude. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, that's the hard thing is that they didn't want to compromise the climate experience. He seemed like, like the, he seemed like, you know, he handled it as good as a human being could handle. Yeah, like, he, no, he, he certainly cool. did like, his you, best. You do what you you do what you got to do. Like, no. I mean, he's a climber and he totally yeah. understands like the. You know, he doesn't want to compromise my climate experience. He also wants to make a great film. And, and he doesn't want to compromise the, the ethics of it all, you know, wants it to be real. I mean, it's, yeah, it's super hard. It's a hard film to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so they actually kept me incredibly well insulated from the, like most of what I know about the filmmaking process, I sort of learned afterward during the tour because we were all doing events together and like talking about the cinematography and talking about all the, the stuff, you know, that was all just sort of the Hollywood tour. But during the process, they kept me incredibly well insulated from, from the whole production side of it. So... I would stay in my van by myself. Production would all be in in a rented house, like doing their own thing. And you know, they're up until like midnight dumping footage and erasing cards and like changing lenses and packing bags and doing all the stuff. And they're like working and then getting up at like freaking three to hike up the mountain and rappel in. And meanwhile, I'm just like chilling in my van, you know, just like doing my thing. But that's kind of how it had to be because it had to be the real, you know, like I had to just be working on my climbing project and they just had to be documenting. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy. It's it was a it's a whole crazy process. So going back to like, when did it set in that you, you? I mean, obviously you understand the freaking, the the gravity of the situation of you making it, but then you make it. Is it still like, how long does it take before you're like, damn, I, I'm I'm kind of like. I'm kind of legendary right now. I'm kind of a legend right now. Well, so in the climbing scene, you kind of knew immediately, like, this is a big deal for climbing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, nobody could have guessed that the film, so the film wasn't released until 2018, the next year. And then even then, the film was released, but, you know, it's a it's a documentary about rock climbing. Like, who mm-hmm. knows how that's going to do. But then it did really well at film festivals, and then it did, um, then the theatrical release was better than expected, and then it went bigger than expected, and then it went to IMAX, and then it freaking won an Oscar. And so the whole, pro- you know, it kind of snowballed, basically. Mm-hmm. And 
by the time we won at the Oscars, you're sort of like, this might be kind of a thing. <laughs> you're like, holy <laughs> shit, like this is really taking off. But, you know, but before that, I mean, who whoever would have guessed that climbing would be so mainstream like that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you just, I mean, there was no real precedent for that. I mean, there's, yeah, nothing. Yeah, I, I never would have guessed. Did your, did your, how about like financially, did your financial world change dramatically or was it a slow build? I would say it changed dramatically after the film. I mean, it's hard to say. In one way, it didn't change at all because I was already, I already was making what I needed and I was already doing exactly what I wanted. So in terms of lifestyle, like nothing changed at all. But in terms of, you know, financial security and mm-hmm. freedom and taking care of the family, yeah, it's totally insane. Because mm-hmm. like corporate speaking, I'm sure you know all that kind of stuff, like making appearances and giving talks and, and like doing public things. I mean, once once you're like, you're the guy from the movie, you know, you're like, yeah, cool, you can go go give talks about being the guy in the movie. <laughs> I mean, like, man, been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of like CEO kind of folks that are like, oh yeah, you're the guy that, that freestyled in Yellowstone, and you're like, oh man, you're like, but you're like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm the freestyle guy yeah. in Yellowstone, the place with the geysers, you know, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. have you been there with buffalo? It's, it's nice, like big herds, big herds of buffalo. <laughs> Uh, when was it that you did the speed record? That was 2018, 2019. It was like the next year. Or something. Oh, it was the next year. Okay. Yeah, I think so. It, there's like a competitive drive. You're a mellow dude, but there's obviously like a, a little thread of competitiveness that yeah. runs through you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you also part of it is if you think that you can do something that other people can't do, um, it's almost like an obligation that, you know, you have to do it. You know? I mean, to me, I, I do feel that a little bit with climbing history, climbing, whatever. It's like there are certain things that I feel like I'm better suited for and, and just frankly better at than, uh-huh. than, than some others in climbing. I'm sort of like, oh, I feel an obligation to do the things that I'm able to do. It, do you feel, how much of it is just you got the perfect genetic uh, makeup for this? Let me give you an example. Some people are really explosive, right? They got like explosive, like they're meant for wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. They're just super explosive. Some people have really, what is it, slow twitch muscles and they're really good at endurance. Uh, I'm really weird. Have you ever heard of medium twitch muscle? Mm. Well, it's like, it's a newer in thing. Between. Yeah, it's, it's in between. That's kind of what I have. I was mm. never like a f- the fastest sprinter and I wasn't the best at the endurance. But what I would do really good is put on a rucksack with weight in it and be able to go like pretty much indefinitely. You're built for the freaking arms and arm services. Yeah, yeah. No, like legitimately like that's. And, I was about and to the, say the army and then I was like, fuck, <laughs> I don't want to get stabbed with one of these knives. I was like, fuck the Navy, the Navy. And then like, like uh, I'm, I don't need to sleep a lot. Huh. So for the job that I went into, it was like, oh, this is. Huh. You found your calling. Yeah, it was so nice to like be able to have some of the things. Like if you need to sleep all the time, and you're in the military, much less the SEAL teams, like it's gonna be a lot it's harder tough. on you. Awesome. Whereas if it's not that big of a deal, then, then cool. So, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, oh, there's people that are better at this part of this type of climbing and that other type of climbing and this other type of climbing. Whereas like, you're the type of climbing, like you're gonna go 3,000 feet, no rope, like that's what you're doing. Do you feel like you're the, like your genetics are built for that? I don't know. I mean, what what you know? What genetics make you? Good? So I think that if if I have any natural gift for climbing, I think it's actually just more of a like my psych, my my mm-hmm. desire for it, my love of it. Because I mean, I don't really have any 
physical gifts. You know, nobody in my family is an athlete. Like nobody's nobody's gifted in any way. You know, I was never winning competitions. I was never I was never great in that way. But what I've always had is I just love freaking climbing. You know, like I, and I've loved climbing enough for almost thirty years now that I've been willing to do it five or six days a week. Like a couple of my friends have said, I, I would never make this claim for sure, but a few of my friends have sort of argued, and it could be true that I've maybe done more climbing than almost anybody else on earth because because I favor these big endurance sort of things. Like I like doing a lot of climbing and I've been doing that nonstop for, you know, 20 or 30 years now. You know, I'm like, that is a lot of freaking climbing. And, and as it turns out, I think that that type of mileage, like that volume is maybe one of the most important things for free soloing because in order to free solo and it might not be necessary i'm sure other people could take a different path to success as a soloist but for me it's hard to free solo without feeling confident on rock and it's hard to build confidence on rock without just a ton of time on rock like feeling consistent feeling you know just feeling at home on in vertical terrain Mm -hmm. and so i think that having that that passion for climbing has probably been the most important thing for me it's like being willing to practice all the time for many many years yeah, I was watching your master class, <laughs> and uh, one of the things in your in your master class, you're talking about your half crimp is weak or was weak, yeah. and you it's identified gotten a lot better. that it's it's much better than it used to be. And and what was funny was I was thinking about my entire climbing career of being t- a total loser on climbing, but you're like, yeah, I was weak at this, and I was like, oh, that's the way everything felt to me when I tried climbing. I'd be like, no, this is all horrible. So you have a weakness. What'd you do about it? Oh, well, yeah, I trained it. <laughs> it's gotten better over time. Yeah, I mean, basically certain grips, like, I mean, this is like way too niche for a mainstream audience, but basically there's certain types of ways that you hold your hand that I used to be, I used to think that there was like something about particular types of holds that just forced my hand open. You know, I was like, there's something wrong with that hold. But then come to find out it was there's something wrong with my hand, you know, that it's just really fucking weak. And I was like, oh, that's too bad. You know, it just turns out that it's not the shape of the hold, it's that I'm very weak in this kind of in-between grip. And so... But that in-between group grip is what you typically use on a hangboard, like on a training tool. And I've now trained more consistently for, for many years, which is funny because I guess it's been like at least five or six years now that I've been like training more. And and I am much stronger uh, in that position now. And so like that type of hold now feels totally normal to me. Where I'm like, oh, it turns out there's nothing wrong with the rock. <laughs> I just had to get my fingers a little stronger. But. There's another good quote in that master class. And it's actually both you and Tommy kind of say it together or one of you starts at the other but you you guys talk about like one of the one of the benefits of climbing is being quote spiritually uplifted in the midst of complete disaster and physical hardship and it's like that right there is such a good thing for humans right to go through hard things and to come out of them uplifted because sometimes they're hard things that just break you down and yeah. then leave you sort of traumatized. And and that's, I mean, Tommy and I actually talk about this a lot. Tommy just spent a couple of weeks for their, their kids' school vacation at, at our place in Vegas. And so I've been climbing up in the last couple of weeks and playing with the family. And it's like all been great playing with the kids. But we talk a lot about the, the idea of sort of elective hardship is what he likes to phrase it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having the, the sort of luxury to be able to choose to do hard things. Because, you know, if hard things are being forced upon you, it's like not necessarily the best growth opportunity. But if you're in a comfortable enough place in life that you can choose to do hard things, you know, on occasion, things that push you outside your comfort zone, things that things that challenge you in the right ways, then yeah, those can be some of the biggest growth experiences of your life, mm-hmm. I guess. But, but you know, it's all about the right challenges. Yeah, and how often do the elective challenges 
become unelective challenges yeah, yeah, halfway was, through, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a, I have a, like a bit of a family joke sort of that, that all my rest day hikes always wind up in some sort of unplanned scramble. <laughs> you know, there's always like ropeless climbing at the end of one of my hikes because <laughs> like, I, you know, and it's not always true, but it does seem to happen that my rest day hikes, you know, where I'm like, oh, I'm going to go check out this other place or like, look at this thing. And they almost always wind up with like, oh, and then I had to climb over this thing or, you know, and then it, like, you know, I once descended, uh, I live, uh, outside of Las Vegas. Um, have you, have you climbed to Vegas ever? No. You've never been there? Like um, Red Rock Canyon is like this big famous. They're basically the 3,000-foot sandstone walls like just outside yeah, of town. I, I've, I have been to Red it's Rock like Canyon, really, but I haven't climbed there. Yeah, it's really pretty. It's it's beautiful. It's a destination. But so those big mountains have like canyoneering routes and pretty technical descents off some of them, like full-on like what you imagine Utah slot canyons where you do you know 15 rappels and like swim through pools of water and stuff. Anyway, so some of my rest day hikes have ended in canyons and things like that by accident. We were like, oh, I was hiking and I was out of food and water and I was just trying to get back to the car and then I had to down climb 15 rappels and then and then climb across these pools and stuff because I didn't want to freaking swim because you're like in the middle. You know, you're like, this is crazy. But yeah, but that's the kind of elective challenge that you're like, you know, yeah, you often get in over your head and it becomes more than you expect, but it's still by choice. Yeah. When does the when does it get too too hot to climb in Vegas? Actually, it never really gets too, too hot because uh, there's a mountain above town that goes to 12,000 feet. Oh, okay. So you can climb, you know, eight or 9,000 feet in the summer uh, in full shade, good wind. It's like, you know, basically it's, I, I mean, I live in Vegas for a reason. It's the yeah. best climb in the country. Yeah, it's no, awesome. I, I remember when you first moved to Vegas and I read an article about, you're like explaining why you moved there and you're like, oh, there's just climbing everywhere. Yeah, everybody just thinks of the Strip and they're like, why would you go to Vegas? And you're like, yeah, the Strip is, is crazy, but just outside of town is the best climbing in the country. The Strip is actually even worse is when you go like four blocks off the strip yeah and it's like they're really sad <laughs> like like light yeah, industrial it's, sort of it's like, horrible yeah, yeah. it's depressing yeah. yeah it's really grim it's it's like but I've, the mountain access in vegas i think is the best in the country i mean the it's insane like from the from the suburban edge of town like you can be in full-on like cookie cutter suburbs houses with like grocery stores next to you you can drive 15 minutes to a trailhead and then you can like run or bike for 15 minutes and you can be in the middle of nowhere where you're never going to see a soul and then you know with like an hour of scrambling and hiking you can be back in some canyons where you're like i'm going to die alone out here and no one will ever find my body it's like it's crazy I mean, in a way that that's hard to experience like anywhere, like all the famous sort of mountain cities in the U.S., like, you know, Salt Lake City or Denver or things mm-hmm. like that. Most of those, if you live in town, you have to drive for like an hour to get to like the real nature part. Like you can't be in the middle of nowhere. And even then there's so many people that, you know, the trailheads are crowded, the backcountry is crowded. It's like, I don't know. Vegas is insane. Mm-hmm. How has your process of domestication come along? I mean, <laughs> how long did you live in a van for? I lived in a van... Uh, by myself basically for 10-ish years and then I had a different van um, for another five-ish years sort of maybe 15 years on and off in the van and then I bought a house with my now wife and now we have an almost two-year-old and mm-hmm. yeah domestication is uh, strongly <laughs> on on track I'm, I'm domesticating for sure <laughs> and you're not losing your mind too bad no, it's funny. You know, sometimes I'm like, should I be more upset about this? Or like, should I be chafing? But I, I kind of like it. Like, my daughter's great. I'm having a good time. I'm training. I'm climbing. I feel like I'm still able to do all the big climbing adventures that I want. I think part of it is that my hunger is way diminished for it. Mm-hmm. And part of that, I'm like, oh, is that because I'm losing my fire? Am I losing that at my edge? But I think part of that is because I've done many of the things that I want to do. And I'm just kind of like... You know, if there was like a longer list of classic routes around the Western U.S., 
that I hadn't done, then, you know, I'd probably be more excited, but I'm like, I've, I don't know. I've done a lot, you know, I'm sort of like, I've done a lot of the things I want to do. And, um, I don't know. I like, I like dadding. I like training at home. I'm just like, I don't know. It's fine. You say you like dadding? Yeah. Is dadding. Yeah. It's like, oh, verb, like you know? <laughs> verb. Hell yeah. Well, you're, you're already done dadding almost. So. Yeah. I'm almost done. Yeah, dadding. Like you're done. Yeah. And hopefully, like I said, hopefully people can learn, learn from my mistakes there. <laughs> so, so I don't. So. And not train their kids for six hours a day. <laughs> <in jiu-jitsu. laughs> you're like, weirdly, every time I punch my kid in the face, you get upset about it. So I'm just, you know. I didn't even break his arm. It just felt like it was going to break. I'm like, I don't know what he's so pissed about. <laughs> you kind of, in the 10 to 15 years living in your van, you, you I would say you pr- you must have pretty much mastered like the minimalist lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. Though, though it doesn't feel like you're, you're basically just, you know, the goal is always to climb as much as possible. And so you're doing whatever is required to climb as much as you can and nothing else matters really. And so it's not like, you're embracing minimalism to be a minimalist. It's just that you don't need anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's kind of it's like you're a true minimalist because you're like, whatever. <laughs> just don't need it. Yeah, p- people are always like, oh, you know, living in a van, is that hard? And you're like, well, I mean, the van, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nicer to have a shower or something in your house, but it's hard to beat the backyard because mm-hmm. with a van, it's like you just open the door and you're in the most beautiful places. And if the weather gets bad, you go to the next place. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're just sort of floating between the best destinations in the whole Western U.S. all year long. Like it's kind of amazing. <laughs> Not a bad gig. Yeah, it's it's a really really nice gig. <laughs> I mean, I do I do still sort of fondly miss that. You know, when you're deep in debt, you're like you're changing diapers, and my wife's pregnant right now, and it's like a lot going on at the house. And you're sort of like, man, I used to just sit in the van by myself doing nothing all day on a rest day. It's like that sounds nice. <laughs> and what about the uh, the Honold Foundation? That you, I think. Um, when you talk about it, you went to a trip to Chad and that was sort of the, the inspo behind that. That was part of it. I mean, yeah, the trip to Chad was my first trip to Africa. It was like in 2009, but, but really, so the Honol foundation supports community solar projects around the world. And, um, basically it's like we give grants to, to community nonprofits that, that then use solar to, to sort of better their lives in various ways and around the, so it's been over 10 years of supporting solar projects around the world. And so I started the foundation, I guess, in 2012-ish, so a little more than 10 years. Um, and I basically just wanted to do something positive for the environment. You know, I mean, as a climber, you're just outdoors nonstop. And, you know, I was worried about climate change, worried about environmental degradation in general, and just sort of like, you know, you want to do something useful for, for planet Earth. But I also sort of realized that, that there's no point in helping the environment that doesn't help humans as well. I mean, so like that expedition to Chad in particular you see human populations living in just the, I mean, just the grim, just abject poverty, you know, it's the grimmest condition. In a way, it's almost not even fair to say poverty because like there's no market economy at all. You know, it's like not fair to say they're poor because like there's money doesn't even factor into their lifestyle at all because there's nothing to buy because they're so remote and so rural. It's like, you know, it's just people herding goats in the desert and just surviving. And, you know, a handful of climate expeditions to places like that and realizing you know, I mean, I was reading a lot of sort of environmental nonfiction and, and just nonfiction in general. And, you know, there's something like a billion people on Earth without access to uh, to to power. And, you know, I mean, basically there are a billion people on Earth in poverty that are sort of, you know, I mean, the, the world is constantly getting richer and sort of, you know, progressing, getting more comfortable, except for the sort of billion-ish people who are largely left behind. And, you know, I just felt like if I was going to be supporting environmental nonprofits, like putting money toward the environment, it had to help that those billion people as well. 
so anyway, that's basically where the Hanover Nation came from. And like, and that's just about getting power to, to these people. Yeah, sometimes power. I mean, sometimes that means lights. Like if you're in rural places in Africa, it's like realistically the grid is never going to get there. Um, it'll never be cost effective. So like solar powered lanterns, solar powered home systems. Um, sometimes that means more robust systems, uh, you know, like refrigeration in rural places, like uh, like agricultural processing. You know, a bit, you know, there, I mean, there are limitless things that people use power for. And so, I mean, now... So last year, the Hanover Foundation, well, actually the last couple of years, we will have given um, over $2 million in grants to, to different organizations around the world. And normally the grants range from like 50 to 200K, let's say. And, you know, so it's not like huge money. It's like relatively small scale projects, but that can be enough to like completely transform somebody's life. Because, I mean, especially when you're in rural villages in Africa, I mean, if you get light for the first time, like that's a big deal. Because mm-hmm. in, I mean, I mean, you know, in the tropics, it's dark for 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, if you suddenly have an extra four or five four or five productive hours a day, I mean, that's a, that's a big deal for kids going to school, for people, for people just living, you know, just like having a nice life or like having a light is a big deal. And then like having a radio, having a refrigerator, like having basic, you know, appliances. Anyway, yeah, the, the projects vary. Mm-hmm. The, the scope varies. We're we're trying to do as much as we can. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just I'm just rambling. Yeah. It's like it's just it's there's this crazy pipeline of projects that we get so many applications. So w- what I was trying to say was that we can vet the applications by the, the projects that have the most sort of win-win like added benefits mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh, you're using solar to do this thing. That's also good in this other way. Like there's also a workforce development component or like, it's also the local people learning skills to do, to do such and yeah. such services systems. It's like, we kind of get our, our pick of the litter with the projects that we're funding because there's such a huge demand and you know and realistically we just can't fund that you know like we don't i'm a climber like i don't make that much i'm not like a tech billionaire though i kind of wish i was because because it'd be nice to to distribute the money better but um but yeah so anyway we can choose like the most win-win sorts of projects yeah and even you know doing civil affairs projects overseas when i was in the military like fifty thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars invested into a community that's like a yeah, massive. Like game it's a yeah, it's a yeah, massive game changer. So, totally. That's awesome. What What does your day look like? Like to you know, not today, but like, what's a normal day look for you? Look like for you right now? Well, so right now, my wife is uh is due with our second child in six weeks. So, so we're, I'm kind of settled at home. It's also like it's the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And there've been a lot of folks and family coming, and it's like chill at home. Um, so I've been in this this routine at home where I'm climbing outdoors at this this cave that I've been climbing at, um, trying this hard project like this route that I can't do, and I've been trying for two months, still haven't done it, but it's it's really hard. Um, but uh, and so I go to the cave one day, I train in like a home gym one day, and then I rest one day. And my rest days are sometimes like supplemental workouty stuff, like you know shoulder PT stuff, and mm-hmm. um, sometimes run a little bit, sometimes just bed rest. Just depends on how worked I am from the other two days. But so basically, it's a three day cycle that just repeats ad nauseum for the last two months. <laughs> And then when the baby's born, uh, are, are you, I mean, do you have other projects that you're looking out in the next years? This year, so the last two years were both sort of built around these big summer expeditions that I went on. And so two summers ago, I went on a six-week trip to Greenland, which became a TV show for National Geographic, which actually comes out pretty soon in February, I think. And then this summer, I did a two-month bike tour to Alaska uh, with Tommy Caldwell. So we biked like 2,400 miles and we climbed big walls along the way. And it was, it was funny that with the Greenland trip, 
my wife and I were like, you know what? Six weeks away from the family is too long. Like, we're not going to do that again. That was too much because we were in the most remote part of Eastern Greenland, like totally out of touch, like six weeks away. It was, it was a lot because we had the new baby. And so we we're like, not doing that again. And then the next summer, I'm gone for two months. <laughs> we we're like, fuck. <laughs> it was like kind of, kind of a botch. And, and then that trip, you know, my wife is now pregnant and, and our daughter is like a year old. And it's all sort uh, of, yeah. it's like a lot. So. Anyway, but that's also going to be a, a TV show for National Geographic probably next year or something, whenever they finish making it. But so so what I'm saying, though, is the last two years have been sort of focused on these big, big expedition TV project mm-hmm. things. Um, and then, you know, as much personal climbing as I can fit around family and everything as well. This year, I think it's unlikely that I'll do a big expedition like that just because uh, because the TV schedule, like the things are being released this year. It doesn't really make sense to do another one straight mm-hmm. away. And I don't know if I quite have the appetite for it because... The two-month bicycle trip to Alaska, as it turns out, took me several months to recover from and like to regain fitness from, and um, I kind of dug myself into a hole biking two thousand miles, like as <laughs> fast as we could to Alaska. Like we we just got kind of worked. How much training did you do for the bike part? Literally none. <laughs> I did one hundred mile ride just to make sure that I could, and then. Uh, but I do have a bit of a biking, not base, but I've done a couple of bike tours oh, okay. back in the day, and uh, and for several years before I was living on my van, I didn't have a car, so I was biking a ton. And so I have a little bit more of a biking base mm-hmm. than, than other things, but, um, but no, I got so crushed. It was terrible. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. So but, in recovery mode. Yeah. So it's taking a while. The way. Yeah. That's the thing. And yeah. honestly, like, so I'm, I'm 38 now and I don't consider myself old yet, but I am like recovery is slower than it was in my mid twenties. And it's hard to say how much of that is age and how much of that is like having a young daughter and like, you know, just yeah. family stuff and just a different lifestyle and whatever. Yeah. But, um, but I'm sort of like a lot of the recovery, like recovering from the bike tour, I would have thought like, oh, maybe like a month, maybe two. And, you know, it's more like maybe three until I actually feel better. And I'm kind of like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, like that's fine. You know, what's three months? Yeah. But but it would have been nice to recover in three weeks, you know. Well, when you mentioned that base thing, right, because I remember when I was like going through SEAL training, like you run, you run so much. You run just going to eat is six miles a day. So just, just running to the, it's like a mile to the chow hall and then a mile back. So you do that three times a day. So just without any part of the training, you're running six miles a day. So you basically. That is totally crazy. Yeah, yeah. But why, you, why, not, uh, why not sleep a little closer? Because the, <laughs> the, then the you wouldn't get the benefit of running. So, but you huh. build up this base where, you know, when I was, I wouldn't run for four months or whatever, for whatever reason, or I wouldn't yeah, run for a month. Run. You just go out and run and just yeah. make it happen. But then you get a little older, you're like, yo. <laughs> All of a sudden, yeah. someone puts a watch on you and you're like, all right, let's, we're going to run four mile time run. And you're like, oh, yeah, no problem. And you're like, yo, what happened? Yeah. What happened to my quote unquote base? base yeah. It ain't there no more. It's funny so. you say that because actually, so I, I said uh, I've been hanging out with Tommy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and How old is Tommy? Of, he's, he's eight years older than you? Um, I think he might be seven. He might be 45. Maybe he's 44. I think he's 45. But anyway, yeah, he's a bit older. Yeah. And he actually tore his Achilles last year. So he, he went through like a year and a half recovery process because he it re-ruptured two other times. So basically he tore his Achilles three times and it was a whole process to like get it better. And uh, so, and that's part of the reason we did the bike adventure together because he'd been biking a lot as part of his PT and he was all fired up on biking. <laughs> and he was chomping at the bit to have a huge adventure because he has oh, two kids who are, you know, 10 and seven. And so he hadn't done any big trips basically since he had his family. And then he, had, he was overcoming this injury and he was biking a lot. And he was like, I'm fired up to do something epic. And I was kind of like, I've been doing expeditions every year and I'm a little more tired. And I was like, man, I'm just not quite at the same level that he is for like this, this kind of adventure. I was like, this is, this is a lot. But how, anyway, do, 
How do you hurt his Achilles? Sometimes people hurt their Achilles. They're like, I was grabbing a bag of groceries and my Achilles blew out. No, he took this kind of epic fall climbing. Oh, okay. I mean, it was a normal lead fall where a rope <laughs> caught him, but he came into the wall one footed and the foot that hit the wall ruptured, the Achilles ruptured. Oof. And he said he immediately was like, oh, well, you know, my Achilles just ruptured and then it had to like hobble back down from the mountain. But yeah, it was like, when you watch the video, it is like a normal lead fall sort of but he like swings in all crazy leading with one foot and then hits the wall one footed and you're like oh god you know like i think even if his achilles hadn't ruptured i think it would have hurt his ankle a bit you know because like you're hitting the wall pretty hard with one foot but swinging in all but once again rock climbing is safe it's for the family yeah yeah, no it's totally safe you'll be good to go it's totally safe (laughs) though he was doing something uh very difficult like kind of cutting edge yeah exactly that's and if you're doing that kind of climbing yeah there's a higher probability or and and even still he wasn't really hurt i mean the thing is he's had like achilles issues his achilles were tight he's a middle-aged man you know he probably should have been stretching a little more (laughs) but no what i was going to say though that with the the two of us talking about base like so the two of us have been climbing together a ton and both of us have always had a, a good endurance base climbing um like good stamina and i think both of us are trying to be like i'm not sure if the base is like quite what we thought it was you know mm-hmm. like you've always just counted on it being in the bank and now we're like i think our i think our accounts are empty you know we got to like start <laughs> rebuilding some endurance and like so both of us are kind of like rebuilding some climbing like some base climbing fitness that that we've always just sort of counted on but yeah. we're like it could be better maybe yeah it's wild watching you guys do that speed run up El Cap the way you guys are just freaking breathing like you're sprinting yeah yeah though I mean it's still objectively very slow it's still two hours to do 3,000 feet vertical it's like you know I was thinking about that too like if if I was gonna go for a run right now and it's like hey this is a we're going for a run it's 3,000 feet of vertical you're like oh that's like that's a that's a kick in the nuts run Kind of, but you could probably run that in 45 minutes maybe yeah. or like something like that. It still is a gut check. Yeah, it, you know, it'd be hard work for sure. But okay, well, here you want a fun thought experiment? So, yes. so the, I mean, this is also really niche, but an interesting thing to think about. So, um, so I wrote up an article about the no speed record at some point and I was on a plane and didn't have internet, but it just doing back of the envelope math. I was like, okay, if you compare uh, elite sprinting to elite marathoning, you know, so a hundred meter sprint to the, to the marathon mm-hmm. and you compare the times, like, so I did all the math on, mm-hmm. you know, meters per second. And so basically the marathon pace is roughly half of a sprinting pace. So I was like, okay. So if you take the two hour nose ascent, which is kind of the comparable to the marathon, and then there's actually a world cup speed climb, which is a 15 meter vertical wall that people, mm-hmm. that the world record for men is like roughly five seconds. So it's kind of similar to the hundred meter sprint. And I was like, so if you take the same half that pace, and when when you watch World Cup speed climbers climbing, it looks like a monkey or something. It looks totally insane. Yeah, it's totally insane. It's it's incredibly fast. But I was like, so if you took, uh, physiologically though, if you took half that pace and you applied it to El Cap, how long do you think it would take to climb El Cap? I don't know. What's the math? Uh, It's either eight or 12 minutes. I forget. But... (laughs) But yeah, so it's like basically 10 minutes to climb El Cap. And so, so I concluded my article with like, you know, while we're very proud of two hours and we tried hard and it's a good effort, we're sort of like, it's very far from the physiological limits of like the conceivable, like what somebody could do on a, you know, on a 3000 foot wall. Cause I, I think that, that somebody could go down to like 145 or an hour and a half at some point. Obviously you can never go down to 10 minutes because there's gear and there's rope and there's safety considerations and you know, you're still climbing this crazy wall. But I was kind of like, ah, the physiological limits are much further. (laughs) 
Well, you've done a lot, but it sounds like you're not even close to where you could be. <laughs> but that's, exa- there, that's exactly, that's exactly, I know, I'm like, after 20 years of effort, all I've learned is that I'm so far from what I could have been. I should have been training harder the whole time. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a clip in, in the movie, one of the movies when you, when you make that, and um, you're on the phone with Tommy, uh, uh, I think his wife, and she's like, are, are you gonna cry? And you said, no, that feeling is past. I feel like we suck and should have done better. And <laughs> that's, that's where you're basically at, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, awesome stuff. You get, are we up to speed? Does that get us up to speed? That basically gets us to modern life. I mean, that gets us to uh, the holiday season, just trying to build some fitness. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I was saying the the, the TV, the expeditions mm-hmm. that I've done the last two years, I mean, both of those, I think, are released this year, which in some ways, buys me as a professional climber it buys me like a year or two of having to actually do anything mm-hmm. in a way because there's like content coming out like there's a movie coming out like i think uh february for the greenland piece uh and then you know potentially later in the fall for for the alaska expedition with tommy and and so you know it takes some pressure off feeling like you have to like do something that mm-hmm. year or like create something cool but that basically means that i can just keep grinding away at the schedule that i've been on this yeah. sort of like three-day <laughs> Which I'm kind of into because I've been really enjoying myself and it's a nice way to stay with the fam and like be at home and, and just grind. Because I, I love, like I love just climbing two on, one off, two on, one off. Like mm-hmm. I could do that the whole rest of my life and be happy. And and it's interesting. I'm curious to see if I'm going to improve a lot from it or not. Because like in a way, just like grinding away and training, like my arms have basically been very sore for two months straight now. And I'm kind of like, eventually I'm going to get much stronger. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. I don't know if it'll take two months or four months or six months. But I like doing it, and I don't mind waiting. You know, you know, we'll just wait and see, yeah. like how it plays out. So I'm, I'm pretty psyched. And in a way, having the films come out gives me sort of this buffer to just like keep training indefinitely yeah. while the new child comes, and and we just like keep settling into home life. So I don't know. We'll see. Do you? I have, mean, it's, it's less glamorous than being like I just roam the West Coast and do <laughs> cutting edge free solos whenever I want. But I'm like, I still really like it. You know, it's like it's a really nice. I don't know. Do you have uh, a way of measuring like pragmatically your strength? Like, do, do you do? finger hang for this amount of time yeah, with yeah, these hangs, two digits and yeah hangs with weight is like one simple way it's basically weightlifting, but with hangs um and then also like training boards like uh you know steep boards yeah. where you're like doing boulder problems for certain grades like that's an easy way to sort of measure but but also a big part of it is the sensations of like how do you feel when climbing because there are times when you feel kind of weightless and you're just like oh like i feel great and then there are times when you're like i just kind of suck you know <laughs> like to me it's the sensation of doing something you didn't think you could do Cause like often you'll pull on two holds and you'll look up and you'll be like, there's no way I could like make it to that hole. There's no way I could catch that. But then you try anyway. And then occasionally you stick something that you're sure you couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's like the best feeling in climbing when you're like, I knew I couldn't do it, but I tried anyway. And I did, it was a miracle, you know, like that's so cool. And two months into this cycle, do you feel like you can hold more weight when you're hanging and you feel improvement right now? Mm, yeah. Objectively nothing great yet. Mm. But like getting there, getting there. We'll see. How's the your diet? Is, Are you getting enough protein? Yeah, I think so. I've been, um, I've been doing all kinds of diet, like experimentation and uh-huh. playing around and, and, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's good. I've been like sleeping enough, you know, mm-hmm. very healthy, clean lifestyle. You know, the baby goes to bed at seven. We're in bed at like eight 30. It's like, <laughs> it's all pretty, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all, uh, but, but that's, it's, it's funny Welcome because it's daddy. Well, exactly. Yeah. Dadding, <laughs> dadding. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is it sounds so boring, but I, I kind of like it, you know, it's yeah. like, it's a great lifestyle and yeah, it allows me to climb like the way I want. And, I don't know. Yesterday, uh, because because I was coming here to chat with you today, uh, like today would have been a day at the cave, but I was kind of like, oh, I won't be in town. So yesterday I climbed as a day three, 
but day three is always kind of useless because you're so tired from the first two days. So, um, so I went with my wife to a, like a beautiful sunny wall and we just climbed like a bunch of roots. My wife's very pregnant right now. Mm-hmm. So she just uh, was climbing on top rope and like just having fun in the mm-hmm. sun. And I was like, man, it's so fun to just go to a cliff that we haven't been to in a while and just climb tons of roots. Mm-hmm. You know, I did like 15 roots yesterday or something. And so kind of like a fun volume day yeah. just to like see how you feel and just have fun climbing. How long is the session in the cave? In the the hard cave that yeah. I'm going to? Yeah. Um, normally like, I don't know, f- six hours or less or something. But the thing is you aren't actually climbing the whole time because mm-hmm. like you drive there, you hike up, you get to the cave. Basically I do six routes in a day, mm-hmm. like t- two warm ups and then four hard things and then I go home. Is like the uh, the aspiration, or or maybe sometimes five routes, like one warm up and four hard things, and then go home. And that's where you're at. That's all I do, and th- that's the thing. It's it's a grind because it's like you just go, you fail, and then you go home. Yeah. <laughs> and like my last day up there, I went up and it was freezing cold, like bitterly cold. And so I failed because I was too weak, but I also failed because my skin felt like glass because like with you know it was like zero percent humidity and <laughs> and freezing cold. And so it means that your skin like feels incredibly dry and hard and you like can't even interface with the rock. Like you can't even touch it. It's like, it feels glassy. Mm-hmm. And so then you're kind of like, well, I failed because I'm weak, but I also failed because I can't even freaking feel my fingers or toes and I can't even touch the rock. And you're just like, Jesus. And then you go home feeling totally worked. Are you seeing some progress though? Uh, well, I've kind of seen negative progress on my cave project, <laughs> but it's hard to say because, because the conditions have gotten uh-huh. way worse. Um, but no, I'm seeing progress on the board. Like, I don't know. I, th- I, th- I think it's the right path. But right this right. is always the challenge with training for a long time is because you start to second guess the path a little bit where you're like, oh, am I on the correct? You know, it's like, because it, I, mean, I assume with like all the weightlifting and things that you do, if mm-hmm. you're just like grinding for months at a time, you're not going to see big PRs yeah. while you're grinding. <clears throat> but then if you take some time off and you chill, then you're probably going to feel a lot better. Yep. And so I'm yep. kind of at that point where it's like, you don't want to give up on the process because you think it's the right process. Yep. I was literally just talking about this yesterday like everyone says these days like trust the process trust the process and you're like cool and so you're like i'm gonna do what i gotta do every day i gotta set up my schedule i gotta be disciplined about it but occasionally you gotta take a step back and be like yo are yeah, you is making it working progress or not? yeah totally. if you're not then that sucks yeah but you got to know the time frame of like how much like how long are you willing to work right. or like wait for it yeah because sometimes that progress is so slow yeah and yet the path you're on is the correct path exactly but it still is like Actually, one. so on the, on the lead up to free selling El Cap, I had an experience like that where I was like grinding for months and all my friends were telling me that it was like the bad path, but all of my friends are sort of professional rock climbers where they care about performance. Like they're trying to climb hard grades mm-hmm. and I wasn't really trying to climb the hardest grades because I was trying to free sell El Cap in a few months, which isn't the hardest grade. You know, it's, it's, it's rated 512 or, you know, 13 minus or whatever. So like the rating is elite, but not like not cutting mm-hmm. edge by any means. And so I was doing this tremendous amount of volume and, and as a result was tired all the time. And so I was never really performing at my, my physical limit, let's mm-hmm. say. And so my friends are all like, oh, you should be resting more so you can perform more at your limit. But I was kind of like, that's not really the point. Like, that's not what I'm training for. And I kind of like stuck to my guns, stuck to the path. But then, you know, several months into it by, by sheer whatever, like part of being a professional climber, like had some work stuff or something for whatever reason, like took a break for several days because mm-hmm. I had like something going on and then came back and felt like a total hero. Like it was Superman. like, yeah, I had basically one day outside where I was like, it's working. I feel amazing. <laughs> and then I went back to just like grinding for a couple more months and then was in Yosemite just grinding and then basically peaked for the climb and then was done. You know, I was like, okay, you know, but basically felt like I was sucking for six months, except for one day that was like a signpost that like, you're doing okay. And then, and then the climb itself. How much time did, how much, how many days did you rest before? 
I don't even know. Um, not, not that much. I mean, I was kind of like day on day off yeah. and, um, it was interesting because I actually had done all the prep work was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm fired up. And then it freaking rained. So like I was going to do it, but then it rained. The forecast was bad and you know rained that day. And then, and then I wanted to re- repel the entire wall again to make sure that nothing got wet. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had chalk marks on keyholes here and there, like sort of marking left foot here, right foot, like, you know, cause on a, on a crack up a blank wall like it's hard to remember if it's like your left finger in there or your right finger in there but sometimes it's like critical which which way you do things so a lot of it was like marked with chalk and the chalk washes off if it rains and so i wanted to make sure that hadn't rained too much because even though it hadn't rained that much down valley like or up valley in my van you never really know you know a mile or two away it could have just dumped on the summit and just like pressure washed the entire upper pitches and so so then i went and repelled the whole wall to like double check everything and it was all fine everything was dry my chalk was there but then you're tired from freaking repelling the entire wall. So then you're like, okay, you need another rest day. I mean, this is the challenging thing with free soloing is that like you want to sort of strike while the iron's hot, but then, you know, but then life gets in the way and you're kind of like, ah, oh, then you got to start the whole cycle again. I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, I took a rest day and then, uh, and then went the day after, but it was like, I'm all fired up and then it rains. <laughs> and then you actually don't get to go for another like three days or something. <laughs> Got to grind and you got to rest. Echo Charles over here is a big proponent of rest days. Monitoring rest days. <laughs> yes. You could say what you want. We know what's <laughs> happening over there. Uh, does that get us up to speed now? Are we good? I think we're good. I think we're good. Sorry, I'm just rambling. No, it's it's all good. Um, people, If people want to find you, look, I've mentioned Alone on the Wall. We mentioned Free Solo. Like, If you haven't read this book, if you haven't watched those movies, just go watch them. They're they're. They're awesome. They're awesome stories. It's awesome to see again what I think is I don't know what could be a a a, a harder feat by a human being, but this is right up there. Some somebody wants to hit me up on social media and tell me what was a more impressive feat. I'm I'm all ears. I'm listening. But check out the movies. Uh you're on the interwebs, alexhonald.com. You got your own podcast. Indeed. Climbing gold. And you you bring on people from history, talk through trips that you've done. Yeah, the, this year I think we'll be focusing on the, the Olympics again. Okay. And climbing gold, we originally created it because of the because climbing joined the Olympics mm-hmm. in, in 2020 for Tokyo, though, though it happened in 2021 because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But, um, but basically we created the podcast because we're like, this is a moment for climbing. You know, going to the Olympics for the first time feels like a big thing and could be a big thing for the sport. Um, and so this year, I think we'll be focused on the Olympics again. Right on. Yeah, we'll see. Right on. So tune into that. You're on Instagram. You're on Twitter. You're on Facebook at Alex Honnold. It's H O N N O L D. You're on Masterclass too. Indeed. Got to mention that. <laughs> uh, Echo Charles, you got any questions? Yeah, I got some questions. Uh-oh. You meant what is crimping? Crimping? Half crimp? Is that what's the, what's the term? <laughs> it's just the it's the way you hold your hand. It's like a half. It's like the way you hold an edge, like this. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, crimping just refers to how you hold your fingers on an edge. So what's half crimping? Half crimping means uh, so full crimping. Imagine this is oh here I'll use the edge of the knife. Oh, yeah. This is this is like a good edge. So full crimping is with your thumb over your fingers, like crimping. Mm. Half crimping would be just your fingers uh, halfway like this, check. and then open hand would be like this, like draping off of it, like dangling. oh dang dang okay all yeah. right. And I notice your hands, like, you know how, like, in jiu-jitsu, right, if you're the gi guy, you get, like, crooked fingers, mm-hmm. knuckles, whatever, uh, cauliflower ear, right? Is this, like, and it's actually not your hand. It looks like it's your fingers that are, like, real muscular. 
Yeah, but I don't think they're actually muscles in your fingers. I think my fingers are just kind of fat. Just big. <laughs> are they? No, would they? Don't you think? I mean, you've been climbing since 10 years I've been years climbing old, a long time, so. yeah. I think I think I probably would have had pretty big hands just by nature because my, my dad and my grandpa have, like, big hands. Yeah. But, um, but also, I think your connective tissue gets bigger. Like, yeah, tendons and, like, right? it's, like, cranking sideways on your fingers nonstop and cracks. Like, I think you get... Though I'm going to bet you have some big old hands, too. No, I don't. Pretty, yeah. pretty normal it's like size. You have yours, are way, yours are bigger. Hypertrophy in your fingers. Yeah. I've yeah, noticed. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. That's, Impressive. You know. But, I mean, if you saw, like, a stonemason that worked their whole life just, yeah, like, yeah. chipping stone, you'd be yeah. like, yeah, they're going to have some big old mitts. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, it's just hard work with your hands. But also probably some percentages is probably callousing and stuff. You know, yeah. you probably sand it all off. It's just, like, extra skin. <laughs> sand off the fingers. Well, no, I mean, so, you, yeah, your tips, like, your Oh, yeah, like, my tips yeah, because like, you're, like, so much. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why, I like, you know, I was joking about crimping the edge of this knife. Like, I can't actually feel this that, that well. Yeah. You know, it's Blade. Like, I mean, this isn't sharp, though, huh? No, not, not very. that sharp. No, it's a, it. If you don't know this, Echo Charles, like, yeah. rock climbing is a painful sport. Rock like, climbing is freaking, it's freaking painful. painful. Yeah, Muay Thai. Do you know what Muay Thai is? Um, yeah, like Thai kickboxing. It's like yeah. kickboxing. That is a painful sport too. Like you're getting kicked, you're getting in the head kicked. All the you're getting kicked in the legs. Body you actually shit. you do things to deaden the nerves in your shins. It's it's but it's a very very painful sport, but mm-hmm. rock climbing is also like just there's there's pain. You the have rock to climbing is painful with. in like a way that feels kind of light duty compared to like combat sports where you're like getting hit. Climbing hurts in a way where like oh your skin hurts and like the tips of your toes hurt. And when you're in the sun, like climbing shoes are really tight black rubber, and it's like your toes will be burning. Yeah. And so it's like your fingers and toes are burning and uncomfortable, and it's like you're holding. I mean, some some climbing holds are literally like the edge of some of these knives, like the back edge of this knife mm-hmm. would be like. Like yeah. something that you're just pulling as hard as you can. It feels like it's cutting your fingertips. Mm. It's just like, it's painful, but in a way that's like very unglamorous. You know, it's not like getting punched in the face. Yeah, you're like, yeah. It doesn't seem like it should be that painful, but you're like, man, it just, you just, you're like, ow. It's, it is ow. freaking painful. It's, yeah. I'm here to tell you, it's freaking painful. So like gloves, that's like, is you that a big no-no? No, you just can't gloves? because uh, you, you lose the sensitivity. You oh, can't yeah. like, yeah, I mean, if you think grabbing tiny little things, it just tears the gloves. Like it's oh, yeah, better, huh? better to have the skin. Yeah, Makes the, sense. It'd be like trying to play guitar with gloves. Yeah. It's just a non-starter. Yeah, yeah, huh? I mean, in, in extreme cold, like I have climbed in gloves. Like I've done two expeditions to Antarctica and normally I would climb all the easy terrain in gloves because mm-hmm. if it's easy enough, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. But then normally when you get to the hard stuff, you basically pull your gloves off with your teeth and then like climb barehanded <laughs> for a bit yeah. and then try to put your gloves back on. Oh, yeah. That's you know, crazy. It's like, but I mean, it's, it's how you try to save your skin if you're in like sub-zero temps. Yeah. You know, it's like it's a bit... It's pretty unpleasant to climb in, <laughs> to rock climb in Antarctica. Yeah, what else, Echo Charles? Uh, you watch movies? Yeah. What's your gem? Cliffhanger? You ever watched I mean, that one? Oh, Dude, bro, Cliffhanger. I forgot about the Cliffhanger. Meaning? Come on, bro, Actually, come so, on, so fun fact. So Cliffhanger is mm-hmm. loosely based on, on a real story, okay. on, on like real events in Yosemite. And, and actually, my podcast, Climbing Gold, we did deep dive into that whole story. Oh. Like this, uh, in the 1970s, a plane carrying $2 million worth of marijuana crash landed in a lake in Yosemite. Oh, and, yeah, uh, right. and so it's we in did Valley this, Uprising, right? Yeah, it's in yeah. Valley Uprising. So we did this deep dive where we interviewed all the people involved because <laughs> a bunch of climbing like dirtbag guys that are like living in a tent with like no possessions all hike into the back there and come out with like bales and bales of marijuana, <laughs> which they then dry and then sell. And, uh, and so then all of a sudden a bunch of climbers like driving sports cars and like yeah, going yeah. to Europe. And, like, doing oh. all. Anyway, it's a classic story. But yeah, oh, Cliffhanger yeah. is a great movie. Oh yeah, that was. That's all I got. That's man. all you got? Yeah. That was it? That was it. Uh, yeah. Come on, man. It's good to meet you. Yeah. Alex, any closing thoughts, man? 
no no just a pleasure chatting you know just I was, what a scene i mean i do my podcast like in my actual closet in my house it's like a tiny little thing and i just look at a wall and i'm like maybe i need more climbing accessories and like cool stuff yeah and, hell yeah. you know it's like it sets a mood like there's a there's a real mood in here that, that my closet lacks <laughs> Well, this one definitely started. This used to be the maintenance closet, and it was mm. half this size. And then we recorded in the maintenance closet for a while, and then eventually we, once we had that little desk over there with a bunch of crap uh, getting piled up on it, the podcast place was a little too small, so we made it this big. But what's crazy is you go and talk, to, you go, you know, like when you did your Hollywood tour and you'd go to whatever major broadcast network and they've got 12 people in the back room like looking at you through the glass and all these cameras and everything they don't more people listen to this than that which is nuts right freaking echo charles with his thousand dollars worth of equipment presses record and more people listen to this than listen to whatever that major broadcast is. So, so Echo Charles does the work of 12 men is what you're saying. Oh, see, That's my man right here. He knows, bro. That's when you know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, well, I thought he was going to chime in earlier when you were talking about, you know, the guys are prepping cameras and downloading cards and scrubbing. Guys. I was like, oh, he's going to, Echo's going to chime in with how hard his job is. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just over here climbing freaking El Cap, right? That's what's happening. <laughs> freaking Echo's just press and record that's the way it's going down uh anything else though no no pleasure awesome actually yeah i want to look around the gym a little more after this oh ask a few questions oh yeah what if you jumped in the gi jiu-jitsu you would have automatic advantage advantage with those with your hands no but i'm I'm pretty i don't want to hurt my fingers you wouldn't do it oh yeah they twist them all up yeah that's true even like even if i go to like a massage parlor i'm always like don't touch my hands you know when people are like oh i'm gonna crack your knuckles i'm like no don't mess with my fingers because like That's at weird. any given time, you know, I always have one finger that hurts a little bit in some mm. way, and you're always like kind of like taking care of a few things. I'm like, no, nobody messes with my do hands. You ice your hands or anything like that? No, do that's you do so any unpleasant. kind of protocol on them? No, I get like body work once a week mm. and stuff like that, but no, like hand stuff. That's yeah. crazy. But like a guitar player, right? Where it's yeah. like it's like so critical. <sighs> Dang, I don't like to get my well, hands wet actually because I uh, you don't want to get your skin soft. You know what I mean? Like if you get all pruny, like if you're in a hot tub, I always hot tub with my hands out of the hot tub, <laughs> which I know sounds totally stupid, but that's actually pretty common for climbers because well, it makes your skin so soft. Yeah. And like you can't you can't grab the edge of a knife with soft skin. I have a like, weird I have a weird like fo- similar phobia of like lotion. Like, oh yeah, yeah. No, like, I'm, I'm a hard now. Like, yeah, and, and with our daughter, like my that. wife has to apply yeah, all yeah. like creams and lotions yeah. and things. I'm like, I do not touch any. I'm a hundred percent with you. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll change diapers. I'll do all the things. I'm just not doing the lotions. I'm like, you know, like when, when my wife's out of town, I'm just like, well, bad news. She's not getting any of the things you want on her until you get back. You know, that's just, the other weird thing you're gonna find about kids, like. The first kid, you're like boiling the boiling the freaking yeah. bottles and making sure that the caps had been <laughs> by the your like I got four kids. Yeah. By the fourth kid, it was like I think it'll live. Like <laughs> it's just like eating mud. By, just, by the fourth <laughs> one, you're like if the first one doesn't feed him, I guess I'll just be hungry. Exactly, <laughs> <'Cause> I'm tired. <laughs> That's the way it goes down, man. Uh, awesome, man. Well, hey, thanks for joining us, man. After after watching you and following you and seeing you for so many years uh it's it's really awesome to sit down here and talk to you and thanks for inspiring so many people and sharing your experiences your lessons learned and thanks for what you're doing every day to help people around the world and make the world a better place man appreciate it oh thank you yeah i appreciate it and with that alex honald has left the building after another what's it been hour and a half of talking (laughs) hour we should have just kept i don't know you just little other topics come up and you just carry on with uh 
trying to learn and trying to understand and he's asking questions about yeah. stuff and yeah. I think maybe he felt like he didn't want to interview me when we were, when we were actually on the podcast. Right. So, yeah. I mean, uh, but man, very, very cool. And you know, man, really just like the, it's not too often you get to meet someone that's at the pinnacle of their world, you know? Mm-hmm. They're at the pinnacle of their world doing things that no one's done before. Mm-hmm. By the way, no one's done since. You don't Amen. see people just rogering up to just go jump on that gig again. Mm-hmm. And I'm just super nice, super humble, super good dude, man. Awesome. Yeah, I think that it was, or one thing that stood out that was interesting after hearing it and then thinking about it more was, you know, how he was talking about, hey, I don't, I don't want to get, he's like, I'd rather stare death in the face and not get hurt every day, you know? <laughs> Rather, you know, that's better. I, I remember thinking, dang, I think I'm literally the exact opposite. I'd rather get like sprained fingers and, you know, <laughs> this and that and not have to stare death in the face every single, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, But at the same time, what that illustrates is like, okay, this guy obviously like thinks and looks at things like in a way different way than maybe me or at the very least me. Mm-hmm. But I, I think most people are like that. I'd rather get bumps and bruises than have to look at death mm-hmm. like life or death like that. Um, but it kind of offers like, okay, this is a different way of looking, looking at things. If I look at, if, since I don't look at it, like he looks at it, what am I missing in, I don't know, life or whatever? Like, what am I missing here? And then, so when you listen up, you can kind of find out things that you never would have really thought about Mm -hmm. ways to look at stuff. Yeah. It is interesting too. Like when we got to, we were just downstairs and we were all looking at our hands, looking at each other's hands and like his hands are mute are mutated. Yes. Like. He kind of denied it in here a little bit, yeah. but then down there, we, your tendons grow, right? And he, right. he's been doing this since he was 10 years old, yeah. thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of pressure. So his hands are definitely mute. I wanted to like, like, uh, give him things to squeeze, <laughs> like give him like tests, you know what well, I mean? Yeah. Right? Yes, sir. want to give him like. Like, hey, here's a grip strength test thing. I want to do that. I want to try this. I want to see how long. So I kind of wanted to see what that was all about. I was going to be like, hey, because, you know, when you, you know, when he first came up, I was like, hey, good to meet you. Whatever shook my hand. He didn't like squeeze my hand. He didn't do nothing. It was normal. And then it wasn't until he was talking. I was like, freaking, you know how you can tell. Like I said, and I kind of mentioned it where it's like, okay, jujitsu guy, this guy's been in jujitsu. He's been in all the hard battles. You're going to see on his body, you're going to see remnants of those battles, his ears, his hands, his face a lot of the time. Um, And him, he's in the same exact boat. So it's like, okay, but where's his, where were those, where are those battles? Where is he wearing them? And then you look at his hand and it's actually not really his whole hand. It's just his fingers. When you look at it, like this part of his hand, like look at Dean Lister's hand. Mm -hmm. It's his whole hand. It's like a freaking abnormally huge, like two mitts, right? Him, Alex's hand is like normal, but his fingers are all like, to me, they look like big muscles on his fingers. Yeah. But, and it makes sense too, where you're just holding, cause like, consider this. So when I got in, uh, when I got real more into lifting weights, right. And I have a twin brother, mm-hmm. genetically um, identical. Mm-hmm. And I got into lifting for like years after, you know, like after college and stuff like that. And then I remember, and he kind of stopped a little bit. And I remember this was after years, maybe five, six, seven years. I remember like we made a fist and he made a fist next to mine and his fist was like way smaller than mine, mm-hmm. his whole fist. But I'm like, oh, this is just from just lifting, you know? Mm-hmm. So it like happens. Now, Alex Honnold does the same exact thing. It's just his fingers though. Yeah. So they're like and all it's huge. times way more. starting at 10 years old. Yeah. Yep. 
Very impressive. You know, I, I was getting neck surgery, and the doctor, you have to go through the doctor. He's got to tell you the risks. And he's like, hey, you know, you could get paralyzed. You could get killed. You could whatever, right? You tell me all these things. And I go, doc. Well, I mean, what are the chances? What are you talking about? Like how many, I said, how many sides are on this dice? Like 10,000? Mm-hmm. And he goes, like 200. And I was like, hmm. I, I wish I would have asked that to Alex. Like when you're doing the, the boulder problem mm-hmm. at 1,800 feet, like obviously there's mistakes that could happen. Like, how many times would you have to do that? How many sides are on the dice where you, like, go to kick your foot across and it catches on your pant leg for a half second and that's it? You know, whatever the case may be. So, and, uh, yeah, man. The, The margin of error, like, how big is that box, you know? You, if, when you read the book, you definitely read the book. He talks about that, like about how different situations. His mindset is like, yeah, the margin of sure it's a catastrophic result, mm-hmm. but the margin of error, like you can, he could make a lot of mistakes before something goes wrong. But yeah. also, it's hard to translate when you put your shoe, your rock climbing shoe, on the rock. Mm-hmm. Like like I said, I'm beyond, I'm below a novice in rock climbing. I've like done it and had fun, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I, it never feel, it never felt like secure to me. Yeah. Like I can't <laughs> imagine being 500 feet with my foot on a ripple, and that's got all my body weight. Yeah, that, yeah, it's. It also shows you, and we did talk about this a little bit, but like the amount of technique that is involved is. It's just like every sport, man. It's like every sport is so reliant upon technique. And if you don't have technique, well, not every sport, but there's so much technique to most sports. Yeah. And some, some, like we talked about, some of them are real obvious that there's technique. Some of them, you don't see the technique. In boxing, you don't, you look, if you know boxing, you know how much technique is involved. If you yeah. don't know boxing, it just looks like you're slugging it out with another human. Yeah. Then you go get in a ring with somebody that knows how to box, dude, you're getting worked. Work. Rock climbing, like I said, I, I I thought, man, I can do freaking 200 pull-ups in a workout. Yeah. This would be no problem. Mm-hmm. Free. I was pathetic when I started rock climbing. Pathetic. Yeah. It was it was weird. Mm-hmm. And actually, we were just talking downstairs, and we were ta- talking to that big dude mm-hmm. who rock climbs. Grant. Yeah. And Grant's like, yeah, you know, it's I get a big pump on my arms. And Alex is like, well, look, you've got the same basic size fingers as me. You have to hold 200 and whatever pounds. Yeah. And I only have to hold 162 pounds. Mm-hmm. Imagine you and I do a, a a deadlift contest, and I have to deadlift 135, and you have to deadlift freaking 315 for reps. Who's gonna win? Yep. Well, I'm gonna win. I only have to deadlift 135. It's like, of course. Yep. So, man, so much stuff going on. Uh, very cool to see what the human being is capable of the the mindset it was interesting too he he said his advantage when he said psych i thought he was gonna say psychological no he's like psych like fired up he's like (laughs) the psych because i want to climb i want to do it all the time i want to try hard problems i want to figure them out that is his biggest advantage how glorious is that my biggest advantage is i'm just freaking really into this 
Yeah. Super psyched about this. Yeah. So very cool. The human being capable of a lot of things. Uh, let's see what we're capable of. Let's push the envelope a little bit. Def reset. How's the def reset going for you? Well, good. I'm on the path. Mm-hmm. If that's what you mean. Look, mm-hmm. am I doing the actual def reset? Well, actually, I am. Actually. Okay. I you should have to write so. anything down. I got to write stuff down. Check right? the boxes. Yeah, I don't have that thing. But if I when I go through the list of stuff I got to do, I've been doing that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Get up early. You know yeah. I've been getting up early because yeah. you text me. I'll text you right back right yeah, there in like the morning. That, Boom. You? you like that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's going well. Thank you for for asking. We would, we I did a little workout with K Dog the other day. Got nice. on film. Nice. We filmed it. Have you done any of uh, Jason Kalipa's workouts yet? No, but, but good I, little Matt Cons, bro. Throw them in there. I know. Throw them in there. Yeah, I, I want to. So every time I do mine, <clears throat> like you know how like so I'll do rounds. I told you what I do, yeah. and I do rounds and I write it on uh, on the wall with chalk. You know, like mm-hmm. each round or whatever. So I'll take a picture of the chalk rounds and I'll send it to Jason. I'll be like full credit today, six rounds, yeah. full credit. Full. And he'll be like, bro, get on the app. I'll give you this and yeah. that. And I'm like, cool, cool. And but I never got around to it. I will though. Yeah. But yes, I will. I hear good things. Yeah, the Train Hard app. Check that out, Jason Kalipo. They're re- they're good freaking workouts, and they're not. You know what's cool about them? They're actually really good for def reset because they're like complementary to whatever you're doing. They're like, oh, for thirteen minutes, whatever, nine minutes. Yeah. Like you're gonna do something, you're gonna get a good workout. Uh, one of my def reset things is a hundred burpees a day. Yeah, and yeah, let's just say. It's not fun every day. It's full credit. I, that's like a, like that's such a good benchmark that, and even the way you structured it is actually really good. When you're like, hey, get a hundred burpees, or what, what's the it's two? It's ten minutes of burpees yeah. or one hundred burpees, whichever one right whichever comes, one for, comes yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Well, we're all we all got it going on. Um, Chris Pratt's been getting <laughs> getting his death reset on, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Getting after it, but so many people stepping up, making changes. Doing the right thing, eating clean fuel, just awesome. TheDefReset.com, check it out. Uh, Jocko Fuel, you know we got what you need. Here's a, I got greens, mm-hmm. creatine, and throw a hydrate in there. Mm-hmm. This is like a tasty, tasty, tasty little treat that, that gets you the triple threat, yeah. the triple production. Have you done that before? Not with the greens, but my normal daily. Non-nego daily, every single mm-hmm. morning is the creatine with the with the hydrate. With hydrate, yeah. Greens too. I'm just saying, if you want to give that a crack, you, you look, bro. I'm not. I don't like. I'm not. I'm not wanting to eat no broccoli. You know what I'm saying? I, I understand. So get the greens in. Anyways, jockofuel.com. Check it out. Mulk. We got joint warfare. We got. We got what you need to fuel your system. There's new coffee mulk, by the way. Never oh, mentioned that. Are yeah. you into that? Because you never were into coffee. So coffee's n- not my jam. Yeah. As we like to say. Yeah. That being said, I taste tested it because I'm putting it out there, so I'm at least going to see what it tastes like, and it tastes freaking good. Yeah. So my daughter, she's ten, by the way. She was like, um, she was like, you didn't tell me you got new coffee mulk, and she had been drinking them. I was like, there's <laughs> caffeine in that thing. Ninety five milligrams of caffeine. That's still caffeine, and you know, oh, I'm, yeah, not giving, sure. I'm not giving my ten year old caffeine. Yeah, yeah, yet, yeah, You know, but she's just pounding them. Apparently, yeah. she's like, oh, you didn't, because she likes coffee, the yeah. flavor of mm-hmm. coffee. She like drinks decaf coffee, not all the time. Damn. But I'm like, all right, sister. But she approves of this, even though yeah. she can't do it anymore. I kind of ban her, and she's unhappy about that. But hey, honestly, approved. people, Leif, like anyone that's into coffee. Jamie, like people just freaking love 
They love that new milk, yeah. the milk coffee. What is it? Sweet cream coffee. Yeah. That's what it is. It tastes good. It's got 95 milligrams of caffeine, 30 grams of protein. This is basically the best freaking breakfast a human can have. Am yeah. I wrong? You're not wrong. Because, <laughs> Am I wrong? Yeah, because that's it's a thing. Like people will be like, "Yeah, I'm on this freaking, I'm, I'm on the path. I'm doing mm. all this stuff. I start my morning with coffee, but they get the one from wherever with all the creamy latte, venti, like all the stuff yeah. in there, the caramel macchiato yeah. or whatever it's called. <laughs> and it's bro, it jams your whole shit up. It's like 500 calories yeah. on that one of sugar. So by the way. yeah, and so you're off the path just. Right in the uh, like, as you start your day, you start your day off the path. Yep. Right there, see what I'm saying? No reason Boom. for this. No reason for that. Not anymore. So there so, you yes. go. Check out the new coffee. If you like coffee, you'll love this. You'll love it. Uh, you can get this stuff at Wawa, at the Vitamin Shop, GNC, Military Commissaries, Afees, Hannaford, Dash Doors in Maryland, Wake Wakefern, Shoprite, HEB down in Tejas. Thank you, my people in Tejas. For getting after that HEB, crushing. Same thing with Meyer up in the Midwest, crushing. Thank you. Harris Teeter, Lifetime Fitness, Shields, and Small Gyms. If you want to sell, if you are at a gym or you go to a gym or you own a gym, email jfsales at jockofuel.com. Get Jocko Fuel to your people. That's what we're doing. OriginUSA.com, by the way. If you need American-made stuff, which you do, if you want to support America, if you want to support support American communities, if you want to support freedom in the world, go to originusa.com and get some goods. By the way, we got some good stuff that actually it might not be on the website yet, but it's like it's there. Yeah. Uh, we got like a, a jacket, yeah. you know, the kind of uh, little puffy jacket that everybody wears around, yeah. you know, around yeah. the world. Yeah, sure. Like it's just the standard wear. Yeah. Like, hey, California, New York. Arkansas, it doesn't matter where I go, people are wearing yeah. this type of jacket. Yeah, yeah. We have one now. Yeah. It's freaking perfect. It's so good to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we got that. We made a vest with it too. Yeah. Wait, is there, is, does that style have like a name? I, I The closest I'd say is maybe people call it like a puffy jacket. Just puffy jacket. But it's the typical, the big outdoors companies make them. Yeah, yeah. And everybody wears them. Yeah, it's, yeah. I dig it. So... If you want one that's not made by slave labor, if you want one that doesn't ruin the environment by dumping a bunch of chemicals into the ocean, if you want to support freedom for human beings in the world, go to originusa.com, check it out. Jeans, by the way. Yes, sir. Jeans. How many pairs of jeans do you have? Me? No, people. People in the world? Two lot. pairs? It's a lot. Well, I don't want everybody. Shoot, I don't know. I have, uh, I don't know, eight maybe. You got eight pairs of jeans, right? Yeah, all yeah, yo, origin jeans. Yo. All in the rotation. In the <laughs> what rotation. is that? A lot? There's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh, for real? Yeah, yeah. But okay. Hey, look, you might not need eight pairs of jeans like Echo Charles has going on Amen. in this world. Hey, I know a guy. All right, so <laughs> we're all good. Hey, that's what we're doing. Making stuff in America. Check it out. Hunt gear. Training gear, t-shirts, boots, just go to originusa.com. Check it out. Get some freedom. It's true. Also, Jocko's store. It's called Jocko's store. For, so discipline equals freedom. We're representing on this path, whether you're on the deaf reset or not, even though you are. You want to represent on the path. You want to wear your shirt or hat or hoodie or shorts. By the way, we got shorts. And we are. Uh, we have socks coming. 
Come on, bro. Hey, so a lot of so, some of us choose to represent on various levels. Okay. See what I'm saying? And okay. socks, that's just one level. Check. And available. Some soap on there. Some good stuff on there. Check. Jocklestore.com. There's also the shirt locker, which is like, hey, if you want a new design every month, you can you sign up for this subscription. You get a cool new design every month. It's relevant. There's layers on these designs. People seem to like it. Check it out. Uh, it's called the shirt locker. Yeah, check out also, if you need some steak, which you do, yes. you do need steak, check out coloradocraftbeef.com and also check out primalbeef.com. This is the best steak you're going to get out there. And you know you need steak. Boy, is there anything better than a good steak? It's, it's very hard to find something. It's very hard to find something better than a good steak. And if you want to get the best steak, go to primalbeef.com, go to coloradocraftbeef.com, get some steak. Let's go. Also, subscribe to the podcast. Also, subscribe to Jocko Underground. JockoUnderground.com. We just got done recording one of those. So, check that out. We answer your questions. We talk about some adjacent topics. That's what we're doing over there. We got a YouTube channel. Subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe. What is it? Click, like, subscribe. (laughs) Yeah. What's the mandate? Like, like, share. Like, Like, share, share, subscribe. subscribe, All that stuff. Hey, check out our YouTube channel. We put stuff on there. Origin USA, check theirs out. Jocko Fuel, check theirs out. Echelon Front, check theirs out. Psychological Warfare. Flipsidecanvas.com. Dakota Myers got cool stuff for you to hang on your wall. Books, obviously covered a book today. All Alone on the Wall by Alex Honnold with David Roberts. Freaking good book. Check it out. The new version has the entire uh, ascent of El Cap in there. So it's just it's just a crazy, awesome book to read. Also, I've written a bunch of books about leadership. I've written a bunch of kids' books too. Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, four, five kids' books. Also, Mike and the Dragons. Also, Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy of Leadership. Have Echelon Front. It's a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. I'm gonna do something live right now for you. Mm. Jack Daniel, you know Jack Daniel? Yeah, I know. I heard Jack great Daniel Hill. He just sent me a he just sent me an email. I'm going to read it to you. It says Impact. We're Echelon Front, a leadership consultancy. We teach leadership lessons learned on the front echelon of combat, thus the name. These leadership lessons were often written in blood. Our mission is to pass on those lessons so that they do not have to be rewritten in more blood. End quote. When I tell that to clients, I emphasize that I know that sounds extreme. However, while what they do in their human endeavor may not be life or death, what their people are doing 40 plus hours a week isn't just a job, it's their life. Furthermore, in some instances, your ability to implement some of the lessons we teach could be the difference between life and death. And then Jack forwarded a real world example, and I'm not gonna go into it just for the privacy of the client, but a client was in a real world life and death situation. They resorted to the principles that we teach at Echelon Front and got the problem solved and life was saved. So that's what we do, echelonfront.com. If you wanna know about our leadership consultancy, you can find out about it there. We also have an online training platform. These leadership lessons that we teach can keep you alive, as I just mentioned, in critical moments, can keep your family alive, can keep your friends alive. Hopefully you don't need it for that. 
Hopefully you can just use it to increase your profit, take care of your people, build your relationships, do better at work. Go to extremeownership.com for our online training. Also, if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help out their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Don't forget about heroesandhorses.org where Micah Fink is taking our troops into the wilderness so they can find themselves again. And also Jimmy May's organization beyondthebrotherhood.org. If you want to connect with Alex, he's on the interwebs. AlexHonald.com. He's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at AlexHonald. And I'm on there as well. I'm at Jocko Willink. Echo is at Echo Charles. Just watch out for the algorithm. Just, just be careful of it. It, you, it doesn't come with a warning sign, by the way. When you log into social media, it doesn't say, warning, this could waste your entire freaking day. should say that, but it doesn't. Yes, sir. It just shows you something that you really want to see. That's what it does. It doesn't say warning. It just says, hey, this is something you really want to see. Mm-hmm. And if you move your finger from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen, it's going to show you something else you really want to see. Mm-hmm. And if you do that over and over again, there goes three hours of time. Don't let that happen. Thanks once again to Alex Honnold for joining us. Awesome to meet you, man. Very cool. And also thanks to the men and women in the military around the world right now. The world's a volatile place right now, and you are standing ready to protect us. Also, thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol, secret service, and our park rangers. Hadn't talked about them. I kind of inclu- I include them when I say all first responders. When I say law enforcement, yeah, I'm talking about you all park rangers. But I'm also thinking about right now talking to Alex, the park rangers. I've been going to the state parks and national parks with my family for a long, long time and have been helped out in minor ways, right? Maybe directions. Maybe people got stung by stingrays at some state beaches and whatnot. <laughs> Sure, it happens. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we could use a little extra water out on a hike. So we get we get some we've got some help mm-hmm. along the way. So thanks to all of you and all other first responders for what you do. You keep us safe here. And we are thankful for that. And to everyone else out there, I got one more quote from Alex Honnold. I think it's applicable to all of us. He said, My comfort zone is like a little bubble around me. And I've pushed it in different directions and made it bigger and bigger until these objectives that seem totally crazy eventually fall within the realm of the possible. And look, you don't need to risk your life. You don't have to free solo, L cap, or half dome. But I think it's safe to say that we can all push a little further out of our comfort zone. Take some risks. Get uncomfortable. Push the envelope. And basically, get up every day. And to some extent, please go and get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.